like that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to that. this Friday like edition of the Logan Blackman Show. This playoff Friday edition of the Logan Blackman Show, I should say, because if you are uh, basically just not living under a rock this past couple days, it is the start of the 2021-2022 NFL playoffs. Let's give a round of applause for the NFL playoffs. They are here. We just went through week 18, the first ever week 18 in NFL history with had so much drama, so much drama. We had the Colts getting slacked by the Jacksonville Jaguars, the worst team in the NFL. Then we saw the likes of the Packers lose to the Lions, which wasn't like too crazy of a result, even though the Packers were the number one seed in the NFC and the Lions were in contention for the number one seed. But the Lions, I saw something earlier this week that said the, the Lions are 11-6 and six against the spread this year. So you know what the saying is, Good teams win, great teams cover. The Lions may not be winning a lot of games this year, but goddammit, they're going to be covering some games as well. I'm not too surprised about that one, to be 100% honest with you. Then we had the Browns beating the Bengals, which the Bengals had nothing to play for. They won the division. They couldn't really move up. They couldn't really move. They were just, they moved down one spot. They moved to the four seed, I guess. Then you had the Dolphins beating the Patriots. Then you had the Chargers and Raiders game, which could have ended in a tie, which would have seen the Chargers and the Raiders both make the playoffs. Then Brandon Staley got, I don't know, two... Got too much in his head, I guess you could say. Overthought it, which is something that I I sometimes have a problem with. Overthinking things. Called timeout, which proceeded to let the Raiders go down and kick the game-winning field goal in overtime. So now the Raiders are in the playoffs while the Chargers sitting their ass at home while we are going to be force-fed the stupid game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh my god, we saw this game a few weeks ago. I don't want to see it again. I really don't want to see the Chiefs Steelers again yet. This is what we're getting treated to in the playoffs. And by, you know, just how crazy week 18 was, let's just throw this in there. Let's let's say that the Steelers beat the Kansas City Chiefs, the, the team that should be heavily, 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 heavily favored. I don't know what the exact spread is for the Chiefs Steelers game. I'm going to look at it right now. 12 and a half. 12 and a half for a playoff game. This is a Steelers team that's 9-7-1. Yet, most people, including myself, don't think they deserve a shot at the playoffs. It is kind of sad that they are allowed to be playing in the playoffs with how terrible their O-line is, how much Big Ben can't move, how annoying some of their receivers are. TJ Watt, fair enough, awesome player. Defense, fair enough, has been good at most points this season, but they don't deserve to be in the playoffs. Get the Steelers. Chiefs, I hate you. You're one of my least favorite teams in the NFL. You have one of the worst and the most annoying fan base in the NFL. This is coming from an Iowan that knows a lot of Chiefs fans. Two players on the Kansas City Chiefs, Tyron Matthew and Anthony Hitchens, both said the Kansas City Chiefs have the most toxic fan base in the NFL. If your own players are saying it, you better believe that they have some toxic toxic ass fans. But goodness, I'm ready. And before we get into the playoff predictions and the playoff stats and all that kind of stuff... Got to make sure to go over a couple housekeeping items. Make sure you're following the Logan Blackman Show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because you're listening to it right now. Make sure to subscribe to both of them. And on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening on there, make sure to give it a rating out of five stars and leave a description down below on what you think of the podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. Make sure you're following the Logan Blackman Show also in all forms of social media. Twitter is Logan underscore Blackman. Instagram is Blackman Logan. The show's Instagram account is The Logan Blackman Show 1. Make sure the is in there and the number one is at the end of it. And on Facebook and YouTube, just search Logan Blackman Show. It should pop up both times. Make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel. Watch a few videos if you want. Give some a like, dislike it. Don't care. Doesn't show up anymore. <laughs> and then on Facebook, make sure to give that a like. And make sure you're up to date on all forums as Logan Blackman Show social media. We're going to have a blog post out 
by the time this show is out, so make sure you get up and date on that. It should be a very exciting blog post. I hope you all very much appreciate it. Now, it's not going to be an NFL playoff blog post like we did last year, but we're just going to talk about that on the show because we have another blog post coming out anyways. I don't really want to post two at the same time because I would like them to be, you know, their own separate things where you have one that gets a ton of views and stuff like that, and the other one kind of gets neglected because people usually pick and choose which one they want to listen to or watch or view or whatever. Just one. Don't need to overstimulate people's brains here. Let's just look at one and leave the other one for just the show. And that is the playoff predictions video. But before we get into the playoffs, I just saw this on social media just a little bit ago. Uh, The Texans, pretty unsurprisingly, given the fact that Brian Flores just got fired, uh, fired David Coley. (laughs) I was under the impression last Friday, when we talked about the Black Monday preview and all that stuff, about how David Coley was thrown to the wolves, pretty much. Thrown into the fire. Throw whatever you want to talk about. He was just thrown in. No one in God's green earth wanted this Houston Texans job. (laughs) Not one single person. Two of the top three coaching candidates from last offseason, Eric Bieniemy and Brian Dable, both turned down the opportunity to coach the Houston Texans. And David Coley got it pretty much just because he'd been around the NFL before. He was a wide receivers coach for the Baltimore Ravens at the time. (laughs) He hadn't done anything to really warrant being a head coach. And you could tell it numerous times throughout the season. He was a little out of his depth. But I was like, oh, maybe they give him one more chance. I mean, they won more games than what most people were expecting them to win. They won four. Like, I don't think a lot of people out there were expecting the Texans to do a lot. They went three and three in the division. Now we know the AFC South is arguably the worst division in all of football, so we're not really... <laughs> it shouldn't be too surprising that they won games in that division. But it's surprising they won games <laughs> at all, really. <laughs> and David Coley with the whole Deshaun Watson situation... Davis Mills looked really good at portions this season. I think he led all rookie quarterbacks with 300-yard passing games this season. But yeah, after seeing Brian Flores get fired, there was no way in the hell the Texans could actually look at David Coley and say, yeah, um, we're confident in you moving forward. That was something that was never, ever, ever going to happen. And if you're the Texans, Brian Flores, and this should be most teams in the NFL anyways, Brian Flores should be your number one priority. Especially with a front office like the Texans, who is from the New England Patriots' way of thinking, Brian Flores being a former Bill Belichick disciple, or I guess current Bill Belichick disciple, it makes a lot of sense. Deshaun Watson, one of the main reasons he wanted to go to Miami in the first place is because of Brian Flores. Now, I know there's a lot of other factors that go into being in Miami. Flexible roster, flexible cap space, all yada, yada, yada. Playing in Miami... You're on a what you a good team. I mean, they went over 500 for two straight years, though they didn't make the playoffs either time. Like, if you want to salvage, at least attempt to salvage that relationship between the Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans, get Brian Flores in. Come on. It's the easiest hire to make. I know every team out there that has a head coaching vacancy is going to be wanting Brian Flores. It just makes too much sense. But come on, Houston, if you want to right the ship a little bit, change the culture there, no-nonsense head coach with a guy that, with people in the front office that he has worked with before that know what Brian Flores is as a person, take Brian Flores. Take him. Because one thing we have seen throughout the history of the NFL in regards to Bill Belichick's disciples, and I kind of heard this on the Pat McAfee show yesterday, I believe, these Patriots coaches could go in and just are complete assholes to everybody because you come from a culture of winning. 
When you're Bill Belichick, you can be an asshole to however many people you want. It doesn't matter because most people can't say anything to you because you're winning all the time. No one's going to say anything. You you put up with more things if you're winning. And when you start losing, that's where you start losing people, not just losing games. So you see the likes of Josh McDaniels. You see the likes of Bill O'Brien. You see the likes of Joe Judge. And now you see the likes of Brian Flores. People just didn't want to deal with them. They weren't winning. The, te- the Dolphins were winning, but they weren't making the playoffs. They kept getting smashed by the Bills every single time they played them. Sure, they beat the Patriots. But you're not making the playoffs. Patriots made it. You beat them twice this year. Congratulations. They're not going to put up with that. And especially when the Dolphins and owner Steven Ross have has a GM there that has been a part of the organization for a better part of 20 years. When you have a coach that's been there for three, you're more than likely going to side with the guy that's been there for 20. You've built a relationship with them. And you got a starting quarterback that which you started a whole campaign for, about tanking for, and Brian Flores, one, didn't want the guy, and two, didn't want to coach him. <laughs> he made it abundantly clear that he did not want to coach him. And we defended Brian Flores on those on those decisions while that was all going on when he benched Tua to play Ryan Fitzpatrick. He just wants to win games. The one thing Brian Flores wants to do more than anything in the NFL is win games. And when you look at what the Dolphins roster was when he first got there, they were, like we said on Wednesday, they were supposed to have the immortal tank. A tank that was almost impossible to mess up. A tank that was almost guaranteed to get them the number one pick in the draft. And they still managed to win five games or something like that. With that roster, there's no reason that team should have won five games. They traded every significant player away that offseason to preserve the tank to get Tua, to tank for Tua. And then, like we said on Wednesday, Tua's hip injury caused him to slip a little bit further in draft value at five. Like, the Texans' roster is not good. The fact they got four wins is pretty impressive, to say the least. Now, get Brian Flores in. You've got the number three pick in the draft right now. You can get an edge rusher. You can get a cornerback. You can get a safety. You can maybe even, if you wanted to, improve the off the line a little bit more. You can do a lot of things with a third overall pick. You could take a quarterback if you really wanted to. You could trade back with somebody. There's a lot of things the Texans could do here, which is something they haven't been able to do, it feels like, in forever. Because they traded up to get Deshaun Watson, so they lost that next year's first-round pick, which ended up being the fourth overall pick, which got used to select Denzel Ward from Cle- for the Cleveland Browns. Turned out to be a pretty damn good corner in the NFL. And then you traded away the pick for Laramie Tunsil. Down in Miami, traded Miami, so he got that pick gone. And the Dolphins had the sixth pick after having the third pick because they traded down at the 49ers to 12 and then traded up with the Eagles to six, and the Eagles traded up to 10 to select Devontae Smith. All big, big circumstances regards to that pick. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on with the Dolphins pick there. But yeah, if you're the Texans, this was inevitable. After seeing Brian Flores leave, yeah, you can't look at David Coley and go, yeah, we're going to stick with you. Not even the Texans and how terrible of an organization they are run right, how terribly run they are right now. Even they would look at it and go, shit, yeah, we should probably move on from Coley and try to get one of the other well better head coaching candidates, much higher rated coaching candidates. Because there's a lot of good coaching candidates out there. There's a lot of them. Like we talked about Brian Flores being the main one, but you can go in division, get Matt Eberflus from the Indianapolis Colts, who's consistently had one of the best defenses in the NFL, part of the Indianapolis Colts. You can go back and get Bill O'Brien again. I mean, I wouldn't put it past the Texans at all. 
You can go out and get Brian Dable. He's worked with the front office of the Patriots before, or with the Texans before. In New England, Brian Dable is a Patriots guy. Alabama, he's a Nick Saban, Bill Belichick guy. There's some good coaches. There's others. Brian, Byron Leftwich, but I really doubt he'd go to Houston. There's some good ones. There's some Kevin O'Connell, I believe is his name. Office coordinator for the Rams. You can take him. Hackett for the Packers. You can take him. Dan Quinn, Kellen Moore. We got a lot of coaching candidates. So we got Jim Caldwell would definitely change the culture there. But out of all these coaches, the only one the Texans should be targeting is Brian Flores. Throw the kitchen sink at him. Try to get something in to get Brian Flores through the door at Reliant Stadium. Or whatever the stadium's called now. I don't know if they've changed it or not. It was Reliant Stadium growing up. I don't know if they've changed it or not. No, it's NRG Stadium. NRG Stadium. But yeah, not not too surprised. <laughs> David Coley got fired. And my, my social media views right as I was starting was David Coley getting fired from the Houston Texans. Teams looking for a head coach now. We got the Texans, Broncos, Dolphins, Giants, Vikings, Jags, and Bears. That's a lot of teams needing a new head coach. Thankfully for them, like we just said, a lot of good coaching candidates. And if you didn't miss, if you missed Monday or Wednesday's show when we went over predictions for head coaches, here's who we think are going to be the new head coach for these teams. For the Texans, it's Brian Flores. Broncos is Dan Quinn. Dolphins, Brian Dable, the Bills office coordinator. Vikings, Doug Peterson. Jaguars, Byron Leftwich. Even though their GM says he really likes Bill O'Brien for his unknown reasons. Bears, I mean, John Har- Jim Harbaugh's the dream. But I, I don't know if he'll leave. I, if I'm the Bears, especially with the links of them trying to get the Colts VP of player personnel, I would get Matt Eberflus. Because I'm not saying it would be the exact same thing, but you get a GM and head coach that have previous relationships with each other and can be very, very good. That works. It's worked out beautifully so far for the Buffalo Bills, knock on wood. So I would hire Matt Eberflus if I'm the Chicago Bears and the Giants. I get Jim Caldwell. I mean, you gotta change the culture there. That that last stretch of the game, last this past season, the last stretch, last half of the season for the New York Giants was some of the worst football you could ever watch in your entire life. Basically, just gave up. Now, if you want to change that, you get an experienced head coach now like Jim Caldwell. Now, I'm not saying Jim Caldwell will be the the head coach for the next five, ten years or something. No, I think he's a nice stopgap, but he could help change the culture before he retires because he's like 66 something. He ain't no spring chicken now. Now, he's not like incredibly old. He's younger than Bruce Arians, so I don't know. I don't think he'd be the, the long-term answer, but I think he'd be a very good coach to right the ship there because I've heard that I think Josh McDaniels would also be looked at here with the Giants organization, but apparently he's not looking for a head coaching job and... Like we kind of made fun of a few weeks ago with people talking about Josh McDaniels be a good culture changer. No, I wouldn't hire Josh McDaniels in a million years. Screw that guy. I mean, you watch what he did with the Broncos. <laughs> that dude's an asshat. The dude took the job with the Colts to quit like an hour later. Hired a whole staff and everything. Just to go back to New England. That dude is sitting on his ass waiting for Bill Belichick to retire. That dude wants to be the next coach of the New England Patriots. And something's te- not very fun about <laughs> following a legend is that it rarely ever works. You want to be the second guy that follows the legend. When you're following the greatest coach of all time, there is a whole hell of a lot of pressure on you. A lot of pressure on you. I don't want to be that guy that follows Bill Belichick. I don't want to be the guy that follows the guy that followed Bill Belichick. <laughs> I don't want to be the next guy. No, 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 no. But Josh McDaniels ass. I don't I don't like Josh McDaniels. <laughs> I think he's funny. 
His sound bites are really funny. I'm not meaning like he's funny, like, ah, ha, ha, Josh McDaniels are so hilarious. No, it's more like Josh McDaniels is more unironically funny. <laughs> he's not being ironic about it. It's kind of just like, oh, my God, that's Josh McDaniels. Friggin' dork. Now, he is coaching the New England Patriots. He is the ops coordinator of the New England Patriots. Tom Brady loves himself some Josh McDaniels. And the, jo- the Josh McDaniels-led offense for the New England Patriots are going to Buffalo this Saturday. It's getting fun. We are in the playoffs now. And right now, in the beautiful city of Buffalo, New York, where is it at? It is 37 degrees now. Do you want to know what the temperature for Friday night or sa- Saturday night will be? The high for Saturday will be 12. At night, it will be 5. The game is at, in Buffalo time, 8-15. It's going to be cold in Buffalo. It's going to be a very, very, very chilly game in Buffalo. Very chilly. ESPN's listing it at 4 degrees right now. 4 degrees. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. Based off the last time these two teams played in very cold weather, the Patriots ran all over the Bills. From what I can tell, it looks pretty clear... I don't think we're going to be dealing with a blizzard right now. I don't think we're going to deal with that. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I'm very excited. You could you could crush a lot of demons with this game. The Bills this playoffs could do, should right so many wrongs <laughs> this playoffs. So let's just say, hypothetically, of course, the Bills beat the Patriots. Okay? Next round, more than likely, unless something insane happens, maybe like Bane walks out of Arrowhead Stadium and blows up the field. It's the only way. I, and the Steelers are just the only team that survived this. But, like, it's going to be the Bills. It, it not, I mean, this is all hypotheticals here. I'm not saying it's 100% going to happen. But it's looking like the Kansas City Chiefs will route the Steelers. I mean, if you watch the last time these two teams played a couple weeks ago, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be a very exciting game. <laughs> if it is, fair play to the Steelers because they confused the hell out of me. They fooled everybody if this is a competitive game. But yeah, the it's it, it could be the Bills Steelers, Bills the Chiefs, Bills Chiefs. So the Patriots, starting off with that one, the Patriots have kicked the shit out of the Bills for the past better part of twenty years. Tom Brady, until Josh Allen and the Bills beat the Texans this year, had more wins at the Bills Stadium than any Bills quarterback during that same time frame. You know how sad that is. Tom Brady is thirty. What is it? Thirty three and three now, because he beat the Bills this year with the Bucks. I think he's 33-3 and against the Bills all time. You know the saddest part about that Bills stadium thing? Tom Brady plays at the Bills stadium once a year. One time! That's, that is an insane run of an, just sad, depressing dominance that doesn't get talked about. We talk about Aaron Rodgers owning the, pack, owning the Bears. What about <laughs> Tom Brady and the Bills? It hurts. So when I watch the Bills route the Patriots these past two years, apart from the earlier the game earlier this year, it brought me a lot of joy. And the last two times they played in Foxborough, they've killed them. It hasn't even been close. You look at the game Newton game, geez, Stephon Diggs, <laughs> I don't usually, I don't say this all, too often, Stephon Diggs tore J.C. Jackson, new asshole. And that game last year, when the Bills routed the Patriots in Foxborough. And then he obviously had the awesome interaction with the fans. So you have that one. The Chiefs won. Chiefs beat them in the playoffs last year. The AFC Championship game. First Super Bowl appearance since 93 would have been happening. 
Chiefs beat them. So let's just continue this hypothetical run here of the Bills beat the Chiefs, okay? Hypothetically. Then we see the Titans, hypothetically, if they get past either, because I really refuse to believe the Steelers are beating the Chiefs. I could be completely wrong, but I just, I, I'm not entertaining a reality that's possible. I'm not entertaining it. So it's going to be either the Bengals, or Ste- the Bengals or Raiders playing the Titans in the next round. So out of those two teams, I'm not going to say who I think is wins. Let's just say hypothetically the Titans win. Then we got the Bills and Titans in the AFC Championship game. Titans, Music City Miracle, one of the most talked about, one of the most controversial plays in Buffalo Bills and even NFL history. Was it a forward pass or not? That's the whole thing that surrounds the Buffalo Bills and the Tennessee Titans. The Music City Miracle. The Titans went on to go to the Super Bowl that year and lose to the Rams at the one-yard line. Like, that could have been the Bills, and the Bills stupidly started Rob Johnson in that game, Robosack, one of the worst quarterbacks in Buffalo Bills history, started against the Titans with Doug Flutie, was awesome that entire year. Doug Flutie, Buffalo Bills cult hero. Buffalo legend Doug Flutie. For Rob Johnson, Robosack. No. (laughs) And they lost on the Music City Miracle play. So then you have that game. And then, hypothetically speaking, the Bills make it to the Super Bowl. And then you got one of two outcomes here for the NFC side of things. For the NFC side of things, the number one team that you look at here is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Not because of the Buccaneers as a whole. It's because of Tom Brady. As we just said, Tom Brady has won more Bills. Until this year, Tom Brady had more wins at the Bills Stadium than any Bills quarterback during that time frame. That is depressing. That is sad. You know how many demons would be exercised in that game and the Bills beat Tom Brady in a freaking Super Bowl. And the other one is the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys beat the Bills in two Super Bowls. Back-to-back Super Bowls, the Cowboys won. And killed them in the first time they played. On my dad's birthday, nonetheless. 51-17. Awful. <laughs> oh, man. And other teams in the NFC, I mean... I think unless something crazy happens, I think this is the year the Packers make it back to the Super Bowl. That's just how I'm viewing it right now. I could be completely wrong, but I I kind of just think the Packers are making it back. But for this exercising of demons route to the Super Bowl, that's what I want. Hypothetically speaking, of course, we're talking about beating the Patriots, beating the Chiefs, beating the Titans, and beating the Patriots or, or the Chiefs, the Buccaneers, or the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. That is the most perfect scenario I've ever seen, ever. And it's all hypothetical, but the crazy thing about it is it could 100% happen because there's a 0% chance the Bills play the Titans in the divisional round. So that means if they do play the Titans, it'd be in the championship game. Now, let's say if the Raiders beat the Bengals and then beat the Titans and the Bills make it to the championship game, then... We've got a rematch from the championship game in uh, the 90s season when the Bills lost their first Super Bowl to the New York Giants. Bills beat the, the Raiders 51-3 to was the final there. In Buffalo. Routed them. So that'd be kind of fun to see that one again, but it, it doesn't really affect me. This pay, the Raiders in my lifetime over the Bills has not really been something that's been much talked about. I mean, the last time these two teams played, the Bills won, so I it's not really something that was on the front the forefront of my mind at all times growing up watching the steel the Raiders and the Bills play. I mean it'd be cool to see like the Bills Steelers in the AFC Championship game. That'd be the Blackman Bowl, as we've talked about before. My dad's brother is a Steelers fan. My dad's dad is a Steelers fan. So 
it would have been the Blackman Bowl. But I would I want to see Bills beat Patriots, Bills beat Chiefs, Bills beat Titans, and then Bills beat the Cowboys or pa- the Buccaneers in the Super Bowl. I keep saying Patriots because it's Tom Brady. It's not just it's not the Bucks. It's Tom Brady or the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. But I think the Packers will make it. I really I think the Packers are the team that make the Super Bowl this year. So with that being said, let's go over some of my playoff predictions for the AFC side of things. We're gonna start off with the two seeds and work our way three, four, five. You know, that kind of stuff. So, Chiefs-Steelers, I mean, <laughs> I, I think there's two easier games here, both for the NFC and AFC side. I mean, fair, if the Eagles beat the Bucks, I mean, good on you. I, I really don't see it happening, but hey, anything's possible. I mean, the other side of things, the other <laughs> Pennsylvania team, there is no... I, again, I could be completely wrong about this. There is less than a percent chance that the Steelers beat the Chiefs. It's a 0.1%. I'm not saying it's a 0% chance because anything can happen. But it is a ridiculously small chance the Pittsburgh Steelers beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Ridiculously small. 12 and a half for a playoff game. The Steelers have no right to be in the playoffs apart from the fact that it's been Big Ben's last year in Pittsburgh. You watch that Ravens versus Steelers game. Neither one of those teams deserve to be in the playoffs. It's ridiculous. Moving on to the three seed... I think the Bills should beat the Patriots. I think they should. Knock on wood, of course. I think they should. I mean, I think they're better all around, pretty much. I don't really... I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. But I... Like we talked about last... When was it? Monday show with the the Chargers versus Patriots thing. Like, I fear the Chargers a lot more than the Patriots. And the Patriots, that could come back to bite me in the ass. Because the last time these two teams played in Buffalo, the Patriots won. And one of the most ridiculous games I've ever watched in my entire life. <laughs> but I think the Bills all around are better than the New England Patriots. We're going to the NFC side. I think the Cowboys, I mean, you have the number one offensive league. I don't think they should lose to the 49ers. I really, they should not lose the 49ers. If they do, something bad happened. I am not as confident as that game as I am like the, the Chiefs, Steelers, or Bucks, Eagles. But there's no reason the Cowboys should be losing to the 49ers. There's no reason. If they do, something happened. And then for the final games on here, we go with the Rams over the Cardinals. Cardinals, they have tanked the last portion of the season. They they were the first team to get 10 wins this season. The very first team. And yet they are sitting in the playoffs at 11-6. Their last five games, they went 1-4. Their last five, they went 1-4. And lost to the freaking Lions and the Seahawks in that time frame. Lost to the Lions and the Seahawks, and lost to the Colts if we want to just add non-playoff teams in there. And an injury injured Colts team that had four of their five starting off to linemen out for that game, and they still lost the Colts. They got blown out. Now, this is I think this was the, the Colt McCoy Cardinals. I think it was, because Cam Newton played in this game, because this was the he's back thing. But they lost to the Panthers, too. When a team limps into the playoffs like this, it's not really a good sign. It's not a great sign. Think of the Pittsburgh Steelers last year. They were the last undefeated team in the NFL and then crapped their way into the playoffs and then got schlacked by the Browns in the first round of the playoffs. Like, utterly destroyed. And they were the last undefeated team in the NFL. Cardinals were the first team to 10 wins and finished the season off 1-4. and four. That's not great. That's not great. I'm not saying the Rams are playing their best football right now. I mean, they just choked a game away against the 49ers. They're up 17-0 against the Niners and choked that one away. They played the backup Ravens and almost lost to them. They almost lost to the Vikings. They almost lost to the Seahawks. Like, 
they're not playing great either, but at least they're somewhat confident right now. At least you would think they're somewhat confident. And I think Matt Stafford, if we're talking about quarterbacks that have a lot to prove this playoff term, it, he's the most. Because we came into this season, I kind of we talked about this quite a bit. Because Matt Stafford got to the Rams, and he was talked about being this super underrated quarterback that had no help his entire time in Detroit. And the more and more it got talked about, the more and more it sounded like, oh my God, he's getting to the point where he's so underrated that he's becoming overrated in the eyes of everybody out there. Like, we're forgetting that Matt Stafford had Calvin Johnson for most of his career, right? We're forgetting he had Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay, Golden Tate, TJ Hawkinson, uh, Eric Ebron, which did not work in Detroit, but worked really well in Indianapolis. Like, he got to the point where it was starting to go, okay, this got to stop. We're talking about Matt Stafford, like he's a top five quarterback in the NFL. We can't be doing that. <laughs> that's not That's not what we're doing right now. We are not going to sit here and compare him to the likes of Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or players like that. No, 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 no. Like, he came to the Rams with the idea that this team is now a Super Bowl team. Jared Goff, Jared Goff, you know the guy they just traded to the Detroit Lions for Matt Stafford, got the Rams to the Super Bowl. Matt Stafford came in with the idea that this guy is going to not only get us there, he's going to win us one. A guy that's never won a playoff game before, is now instantly thrust in the limelight of this dude's winning us a Super Bowl now. That's what I'm talking about. We're going from underrated, yeah, I like Matthew Stafford, to the point where, stop. <laughs> That's kind of where it got. And he leads the league, I believe, could be wrong about this, we're talking about just playoff quarterbacks right now. I think he has the most interceptions out of the playoff quarterbacks. Yes, he does. He has 17 interceptions, which is not only the most of the playoff quarterbacks, it's the most in the NFL. So... He does have 41 touchdowns, though. But there was like a stretch of, what was it, like three games in a row where he threw a pick six or something? But I think the Cardinals, just with how they've limped in and how bad their defense has been recently, I think the Rams got this one. And I think uh, for the final one here, Bengals-Raiders, I think this will probably be like the closest game because I think they're two really evenly matched teams, but I'm going to go with the Bengals here based on the fact that the Raiders' defense like, on the front is fine. I mean, I really like Yannick Ngakwe. I really like Max Crosby. Their secondary is injured to hell and arrested. So, apart from Casey Hayward, I'm not really fearing that or thinking anybody's going to stop Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, or Tyler Boyd. I don't know if their run defense is able to stop Joe Mixon because their run defense is not very good. So, that's the thing I'm looking at here. This will be Derek Carr's also. This is both Derek Carr and Joe Burrow's first playoff start. The Raiders made it to the playoffs a few years ago. But Derek Carr, what was it, broke his leg? I think it was right after he signed his contract, they played the Texans. We got treated to watching Connor Cook versus Brock Osweiler in a playoff game. Because Matt McGloin got hurt too. So Derek Carr and his backup got hurt, so we had to watch Connor Cook versus Brock Osweiler in the playoffs. One of the saddest playoff games you'll ever watch in your entire life. But I think the way the Bengals are playing right now, with how good they've been playing the latter parts of the season, how dominant Joe Burrow has been, I like the Bengals in this one. I give them the edge slightly because I think their defense is slightly better. I'm not saying it's like miles better than the Las Vegas Raiders defense, but I don't know. I, I feel like it'll be hard for the Raiders to stop that. And it's not a slight on the Raiders or anything. I just really like the Bengals. So based on this, every top seed should win. I don't really think there's a, a reality where they should be favored to lose. Like the Bengals and Raiders game right now, is a five and a half favorite for the Bengals. 
The Rams are four-point favorite, and the Cowboys are three-point favorite. But I think with how good the offense is for the Cowboys, I, I don't know. There's If I had to, like, ones I'm questioning, the only ones I'm really questioning are Cowboys, 49ers, and Bengals, Raiders. The only two I really have questions about. Because I think the 49ers, I mean, what we saw last week against the Rams is something that they won't give up. But I, I don't know. Their secondary is not very good either. Their secondary is injured to hell and just non-existent either. So that's kind of the situation I'm looking at right now. You look at stuff and how teams are getting into the playoffs. I like the... Uh, the Cardinals one scares me a little bit. But if I had to flip back and forth, I would probably, if I twist my arm, I could I could see a reality where the Raiders and the 49ers beat the Cowboys and the Bengals this week. Moving on to the divisional round, we have now the appearance of the Packers and the, Ram- the, Packers and the Titans. I think the Packers are beating the, La- the Rams in this game. And then the other game is a tough one for the AFC side because the Titans secondary is pretty much non-existent. But the key factor is for the Tennessee Titans is the fact that they're getting Derrick Henry back. Derrick Henry is back and fully healthy, at least as far as we know. He didn't play the last week of the regular season, so you're you're getting him back. You're getting him in practice. He's had multiple weeks of rest where he's healthy. Now you get him back for the playoffs. But the Bengals... At portions this season, their run defense has been very, very good. They have had one of the more underrated brush defenses in the NFL. I'm not saying it's anything like spectacular, spectacular, but it's been one of the better, one of the more underrated run defense in the NFL. They have a top five rush defense, and no one really talks about it. And I'm going to go, actually here, I'm going to go with an upset. I'm going to go with the Bengals over the Titans. I'd be completely wrong here. The Bengals have not won a playoff game since freaking 1991, January 6, 1991 versus the Houston Oilers was the last time the Bengals won. I'm going to go with the upset here because the Titans aren't playing the best football they could ever play right now. Now they are getting healthier, which is big for them. But man, I'd, I don't know if their secondary can hold. I like Kevin Byard a lot. I think Kevin Byard's one of the more underrated uh, safety, one of the, well, not just safety, one of the more underrated players in the NFL. But I'm going to take the Bengals. I'm going to take the Cincinnati Bengals as a shocker there. And then the, there's no shockers in the NFC. I'm going to take the Bucks, And then you can call me a homer all you want. I'm going to take the Bills over the Chiefs. I'm going to take the Bills over the Chiefs. This one's biased, but I gotta, if I'm being like slightly unbiased, I would say the Chiefs. But the Bills have the number one pass defense. They have the number one scoring defense. They have the number one total defense in the NFL. The Chiefs defense, yes, is getting better. But I like the Bills' defense in this. I think the fact the Bills are reestablishing a run game, their offensive line's playing more consistent, the fact their defense is still lights out, I like the Bills in this. I like the Bills in this one. Now moving on to the AFC, the super, the AFC and NFC Championship game. We have one, two, three, four seeds in this round. I'm going to go with the Packers over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I just feel like this is the Packers' year to get back to the Super Bowl. I just feel like it is. I feel like it's the Packers' chance to get back to the Super Bowl, and I'm going to go with the Buffalo Bills against the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> you can call me biased all you want. I don't care. I do not care. I am saying Packers-Bills in the Super Bowl, and I'm going to go... Okay, it's gonna. It's hard. I'm going to say the Packers win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I think the Packers win the Super Bowl this year. Ah. Psych! We're going to go with the Bills winning the Super Bowl. Oh my goodness, the upset of all upsets. The Buffalo Bills 
beat the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl. I have 50 bucks riding on this game with my friend Andrew. Bills over the Packers in the Super Bowl. I do not care. I think the Bills are hot right now. I love Aaron Rodgers. I like a lot of the players the Packers have, but I'm going to go with the Bills' defense over the Packers. Yeah. Uh, am I confident with these predictions? Not really. <laughs> I mean, I, but I could totally... I mean, obviously I predicted so I could see it happening. I'm trying to go as like... Realist, I gotta. There's got. There's gonna be upsets. There's always upsets in the playoffs. So I can't go with just every higher seed wins. That's not realistic. Every someone's gonna get upset here. And I think the one that I'm quietly confident with, even though I said that I'm I'm struggling between the Raiders and the Bengals. Bengals Titans, I can honestly see happening. I can honestly with how banged up the Titans secondary is, with how good the Bengals rush defense is, with how complete their offense is right now. I'm gonna take Joe Burrow. And the Bengals. I, I, this might sound crazy. It might sound crazy. But that Raiders-Bengals game is going to be crazy. I'm actually really excited for that one. I think in Cincinnati, though, it'll be nice for the Bengals. So, yeah, recap real quick. We've got the Chiefs over the Pittsburgh Steelers. We've got the Bills over the Patriots and Bengals over the Raiders. We've got the Bucks over the Eagles, Cowboys over the Niners, and Rams over the Cardinals. Then we've got the Bengals, surprisingly over the Tennessee Titans and the Bills over the Chiefs. Then we got Packers over the Rams and Cow or the Chiefs, the Bucks over the Cowboys. And then we've got the Bills over the Bengals and Packers over the Buccaneers and the Bills in the Super Bowl. <laughs> this sounds, sounds so biased right now, <laughs> which is what the goal was. Oh my goodness. Uh am I confident? Kind of. I mean I've said I said before I'm quietly confident about the Bills and their stances this season. I'm really, I'm really surprised. I'm really surprisingly confident. Even though they've been so up and down this season, I think I'm, I'm surprisingly confident. Like, and you want to be clutch as the game gets long, and Josh Allen this year in the fourth quarter completes 71% of his passes, over 1,000 yards, 10 touchdowns, no picks. Josh plays his best football in the fourth quarter. Josh Allen, factually, is one of the most clutch quarterbacks in the NFL. You look at when he came in the league till now, he has the most or second most game-winning drives in the NFL. Or come from, or tying drives, or whatever. Whatever you want to call it. So in his second year in the league, he was right behind Drew Brees. Like, it's... Josh is clutch. And people don't want to admit that sometimes. Josh Allen's one of the most clutch quarterbacks in the NFL. So I'm confident in that. And yeah, the run game being a thing, the off the line coming back into full fruition, the pass defense, the total defense playing really, really well right now. Number one defense in the NFL, number one pass defense, number one total defense, scoring defense, third down defense, first downs giving up defense. Like, I'm going to go with the best defense in the NFL. That's what I'm going to go with. That's pretty much my thought process in this. And I would love to see the AFC go through Buffalo. I'd really love to see that. I would really the AFC is just a jumbled mess. That's pretty much it. It's a jumbled freaking mess. <laughs> and I hate that the Bengals and or the Chiefs and Bills got to meet or possibly meet in the divisional round. I hate that. I hate that the Titans got the first round by because they are stupid. <laughs> I don't like the Titans. Screw the Titans. Screw Mike Vrabel. Screw everybody on the Titans. No, I like AJ Brown. I like Derrick Henry, but screw the Titans. Yeah, screw, screw them. Screw them. Okay. Screw that. <laughs> oh, jeez, I just blew up my head.
<laughs> that was that was unintentional. That was unintentional. But I almost blew my microphone. <laughs> oh man, but I'm excited for the playoffs. I'm really excited for the playoffs. I love playoff football. Stressful time. The one thing that I will say, when your team doesn't go to the playoffs for 18 years, the stress in January does not exist. Stress does not exist when your team stinks. Does not happen. And it's a beautiful thing. It is an absolutely beautiful thing. When your team sucks, yes, okay, you suck. That's fine. Yes, you might be picking 14th every single year. But the pain of not being in the playoffs, not even really being close, just being 7-9, 6-10 every single year, you don't have that. You don't have the thing that goes, oh, man, we should have lost this game. But like the Steelers fans, I'm sure they're just living all of vibes right now. Steelers fans are just going in not expecting a damn thing to happen in the playoffs. And they're just going, hey, we made it. That's pretty cool. We made the playoffs. Did you think we'd be here? Nope. <laughs> now, I am aware that there's probably some Steelers fans out there that thought they should win the division, let alone make the playoffs at the start of the year. I mean, we didn't. We said they'd go 9-8, and eight and they finished 9-7-1. It's, it's the the weird-ass tie with the Detroit Lions with Mason Rudolph starting one of the ugliest football games you'll ever watch in your entire life. Man. But I'm excited. Playoffs are awesome. Playoff football is great. And we got... Here's the schedule. Since we haven't really said this yet, the first game in the playoffs is the Bengals-Raiders. We got that game at 3 o'clock on Saturday. And the Sunday Saturday night game, we got Bills-Patriots at 7-15. The Bengals-Raiders game will be on NBC. The Bills... And Patriots will be on CBS. We got the flipped around because NBC Sunday Night Football, CBS is the, you know, primetime stuff. Like, the not primetime, but like, you know, afternoon games. Noon, three o'clock games. Those, that's your, that's your CBS now. We got NBC doing the afternoon game and CBS doing the morning, the night game, which is weird. Then going on to Sunday, we got the Eagles and Bucks on Fox at noon. We got the Niners Cowboys at 3.30 on CBS and Steelers Chiefs on NBC at 7.15, and then on Monday night, the first ever Monday night wildcard game, we got Cardinals-Rams on ESPN, ABC, or ESPN Plus at 7.15. The lines for all these games, the Bengals are a five-point favorite over the Raiders. The Bills are a four-point favorite over the Patriots. The Eagles are an eight-and-a-half-point dog to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Cowboys, three-point favorite over the Niners. Chiefs, as we said, a 12-and-a-half-point favorite over the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the Rams, a four-point favorite over the Arizona Cardinals. This is all ESPN's bets. I don't know if you use ESPN's bets or use DraftKings or use Caesar Sportsbook or use MGM or whatever you use. But make sure you gamble accordingly. Don't go too crazy. Don't go too crazy now. Just uh, be be nice. Be nice and calm with it. But it's fun. I'm excited for the playoffs. I'm really excited for the playoffs. We just got college football season over. <clears throat> so now we are a month away for no football. We got no football in a month. That is sad. I don't like that. The Super Bowl is on February 12th. We are almost exactly a month away from no football. Actually, a month from now, there will be no football. We're going to be treated the USFL, which is back, which is ridiculous to think that the USFL is back. Now, it's not going to have the same, uh, at least I would think, it doesn't have. it's not going to have the same funding that it once had, where the USFL is taking players from the NFL draft, like, Doug Flutie, Herschel Walker, Reggie White, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, like legends in the NFL. Yeah, Herschel Walker, more of a football legend than an NFL legend. I mean, an NFL legend from the fact that he's part of the Herschel Walker trade, the greatest trade in NFL history, sending him to the Vikings for, you know, everything that just, you know, 
built a dynasty where the Viking just got <laughs> Herschel. Oh, man. But the USFL is back. And the teams, for those of you who are unaware, for the USFL, I don't know when this, I don't know when the, the season starts. Not 100% sure when the USFL season starts. But the teams this year are as follows. we got the Michigan Panthers, the New Jersey Generals, the Philadelphia Stars, the Pittsburgh Maulers, the Tampa Bay Bandits, New Orleans Breakers, Houston Gamblers, and the Birmingham Stallions. Now, I don't remember what all the original teams were. I know the Houston Gamblers were original team. I know they were original. I know the New Jersey Generals were an original team because they had Herschel Walker and they had Doug Flutie. And I think they had Reggie White. I think they did. But I don't really remember. But the Houston Gamblers were Jim Kelly's team. So that's how I know the Houston Gamblers. They don't have the, was it the LA Express? Was that the other one? Yeah, LA Express was Steve Young's team. They're not in the league anymore. So we just got eight teams just to start up this year. But here's the original teams. We had the the Arizona Wranglers slash Outlaws. We had the Birmingham Stallions, which are back, as we've said, Birmingham Stallions. Then we've got the Boston, New Orleans, Portland Breakers, which, <laughs> which are just, you know, a hodgepodge of random teams. Now they're the New Orleans Breakers. They're back at that. They were there in 84. They relocated three times in the league's three-year existence. We had the Chicago Blitz. We have the Denver Gold, the Los Angeles Special, the Michigan Panthers, New Jersey Generals, Oakland Invaders, Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars, the Tampa Bay Bandits, Washington Federals slash Orlando Renegades, Houston Gamblers, Jacksonville Bulls, Memphis Showboats, Oklahoma Outlaws, Pittsburgh Maulers, and the San Antonio Gunslingers. So now if you're looking for a team, they haven't list. I don't know if they've initially announced their starting rosters yet or if they've had a draft or anything, but... I'm a Houston Gamblers fan. I mean, as we've said, Jim Kelly, that was where he started. Dominant in the USFL with the Houston Gamblers. So, I have my team already before the season even started. I would recommend you choose one. It's kind of like the XFL we had. We went through every single team and chose the team based off the quarterbacks. Because the XFL had their own draft thing. So, we could see the quarterbacks that were on each team. And we ended up choosing the DC Defenders because of the fact they had Cardale Jones and Tyree Jackson, two former Buffalo Bills quarterbacks. And based on the other quarterbacks that were drafted first, the only one that was relatively likable was <laughs> Cardale Jones. I think Josh Johnson was in there as well. Josh Johnson's a lot of fun. And PJ Walker was not the first pick by the Houston, oh, what was their name? Houston Roughnecks. It was Connor Cook was the first pick of the Houston Roughnecks. <laughs> that was why we didn't choose Houston. Uh, but PJ Walker was by far the best best player in the XFL, but the USFL should be fun. I, I don't know when that officially starts up. Do they have that on here? When's the season start? I know it starts this year. League history, league finances. We're not going to have schedule. Have they not released one yet? I just want to know when the league starts. That's the only thing I want. So April, 20, April 16th of June, 2022. We have 42 games on Fox, FS1, NBC, Peacock, and USA Network. So, April 16th. So, we are three months away, basically, from the USFL kicking off. Three months in three or two days, depending on how <laughs> when you're listening to this. Because I'm recording on the 13th, you're listening to it on the 14th. So, we're, we're a little bit away. We're a little bit away. But if you need a team, there's that. Because, I mean, I hate... I'm, I'm starting to become a person... I, I sound old for this. I sound like a freaking grandpa. But I'm not... I'm becoming less and less entertained by this whole summer football league thing because it's going off the fact that we as Americans just love football, which we do. Americans love football. But when you watch the NFL and you watch college and then you watch bad college players on bad professional teams, it's not very fun. 
It's not very enjoyable. Now, you have, like, your odd players, like, you oh, I remember when this player played for my favorite college team. But it's not fun. It's not the college team anymore. It's just a, a player that wasn't good enough for the NFL on a team with a bunch of other players that aren't good enough for the NFL. Now, there's some, you know, oddities in there. Like, you got Josh Johnson again. You got P.J. Walker. I mean, Tommy Maddox, in the original XFL, he got a career from the XFL. Moved up, became the starter of the Pittsburgh Steelers. After basically busting when he first got drafted because you're supposed to replace John Elway and kind of like Jordan Love, the situation in Green Bay, John Elway just wouldn't retire. <laughs> so he kind of got shafted by the organization. So I hope Jordan Love doesn't fall into that same pit. But hey, Tommy Maddox came back, dominating the XFL, came back, started for the Pittsburgh Steelers for a little bit. Maybe Jordan Love can do the same thing. I hope not because I, I like Jordan Love and I think he's really talented. So just time will tell on the whole Jordan Love situation. But speaking of Jordan Love and draftable players... We were going to release this last Friday, didn't. Then we were going to release this Wednesday, didn't. So now we got it today, and this is the 2022 NFL Draft. New year, 2022 anyways, player prospect rankings list. We got 10 players per position. We've got some honorable mentions in most positions as well. We're just going to talk about the top five players here on the show. You can go look at the blog post as well and make sure again, you're following the Logan Blackman Show on all forms of social media. Twitter, Logan underscore Blackman. Instagram, Blackman Logan. Instagram for the show is the Logan Blackman Show 1. Make sure you have the and 1 in there. Then Facebook, the Logan Blackman Show. YouTube, same thing. And you can go follow me on LinkedIn. You can be a connection on LinkedIn. Just search the Logan Blackman Show. And since you're following us right now or listening to the show right now, make sure you are following and or subscribed to the Logan Blackman Show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure on Apple Podcasts you leave a rating out of five stars. And make sure to leave a description down below so we can get all your your comments about the show, what you liked, what you didn't like, what you would hope the changes for the future, all that kind of stuff. But you can see this blog post everywhere. Or you can just go to the loganblackmanshow.com and go to the blog section or scroll down on the main page, click the link down there. Should take you right to the post. But yeah, we are going to do this Friday. Didn't like where the list sat on Friday. And then we were going to do it Wednesday. And then as I was talking about it, I was falling asleep. I kind of talked about it at the end. I recorded like a good 20, 25 minutes of that section. And then I could feel myself starting to fall asleep. And I was like, uh, I literally on the, I cut it out, but I was like, should I just stop? This isn't worth it. I just got, I'm just going to stop. Cause I, it's going to sound like garbage. It might still sound like garbage. So who knows? Maybe it was just delayed garbageness of the Logan Blackman show, but I think it'll sound better today. At least I hope so. Let me take a sip of water real quick. <sighs> okay. Now, let's get into this. Now, again, like we said before, 10 players per position. We've got quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, tackles, interior offensive linemen, interior D linemen, edge rushers, linebackers, corners, and safeties. And we've got a top 50 player ranking at the very bottom of it as well which we'll not go over today, but you can just go scroll down to the very bottom of the blog post and you can see all that for yourself. Perfect. You see that? See how this works? Okay. So starting off the quarterback position, we got positional grades as well for like how strong we think the class is. And this quarterback class has been seen, quote unquote, as one of the weaker ones in recent memory. But when you look at like, I don't know, the, 20, the 2019 draft class, outside of Kyler Murray, I mean, Daniel Jones, Dwayne Haskins, Drew Locke, like it's not the strongest draft class there. Got the EJ Manuel draft class with EJ Manuel being the only quarterback selected in the first round with Geno Smith getting selected in the second round. 
no good quarterbacks really that I can remember anyways taking re- that were really good in that draft class. Like there's there's some bad draft classes and Daniel Jones might not be on a team this year given the fact that Dave Gettleman and Joe Judge are out of the picture. Maybe. I'm not saying he should. I think Daniel Jones as we talked about before has the skill set to be a good quarterback in the NFL. It's just a matter of if he gets it all figured out, if and when or major if he ever gets it figured out in the next level because I think he's got the athleticism. I think he's got a good arm. I think he's got a good head on his shoulders anyways. I mean, he's got everything you're looking for. He just needs to put it all together. And with the Joe Judge as the, as the head coach, didn't work. And then you've got no off the line as well. Tried to get you weapons. Got Saquon Barkley. But Saquon Barkley can't stay healthy. And the O-line reeks. You, for some reason, took Andrew Thomas above Tristan Worse, which is, it was stupid back then. It's even dumber in hindsight. Tristan Wirfs is one of the best tackles in the NFL, regardless of how old he is. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Now we're talking about moving Andrew Thomas in the guard. That's how bad he's been. Like When you were a tackle drafted with a very high pick, you're expected to be a tackle for the rest of your career. Not moved inside the guard. That's pretty damning resolution. Pretty damning, uh, what do you want to call it? No, it's not good. <laughs> you know, when you're drafted as a tackle, the high pick, you don't want to move inside the guard. It's not very good. That usually means you're a terrible tackle. Like Tony Mandrich, drafted as a tackle, moved inside the guard later in his career. Robert Gallery, started off as a tackle, moved inside, both number two overall picks. Andrew Thomas is a fourth overall pick. He's already getting talked about moved inside the guard. Austin Jackson's moved inside the guard already. Robert Hunt's moved inside the guard for the Dolphins. It's not great. When you move in, now, if you're a tackle in college and say, hey, I'm going to move inside to guard before you get drafted, that's fine. Brandon Scherf is that. Played tackle at Iowa, moved inside to guard before he got drafted, is now one of the best guards in the NFL. So that's fine when you do it yourself. Not when you're like, okay, you're a high draft, but we got to play. Eric Flowers is another one. Got your Giants draft pick. So it's just not, not a great, not a great thing. But the quarterback class, yeah, it's not great. But if I'm looking at this right now, Kenny Pickett, who's the number one quarterback in the draft class for me, came out better of college than Daniel Jones did. And Daniel Jones drafted six overall. And we're talking about, now, was Daniel Jones supposed to go six overall? No. But <laughs> he got drafted sixth. Right now, the Carolina Panthers sit sixth. And we talked about this before. The connection between Matt Rule and Kenny Pickett. Matt Rule commit, uh, recruited Kenny Pickett to Temple. Matt Rule obviously took the Baylor job. Kenny Pickett obviously went up to Pitt. But the relationship is there. Kenny Pickett was ready to commit to Temple before Matt Rule took the job at Baylor. And with Matt Rule's, uh, I don't know you really want to describe this, his weird relationship with his starting quarterbacks with his time as Carolina, he's going to want somebody. And the problem is with the Carolina Panthers, and I don't know if this is like something that can't be resolved, but they accepted Sam Darnold's fifth-year option before he even got to the team. So, what that says, he's going to get money that he probably shouldn't deserve because the Panthers stupidly accepted that clause. So instead of probably trying to trade for one, maybe you look at someone like Kenny Pickett. Now, I'm not completely ruling out a trade for Deshaun Watson. But like we said earlier, the whole Texans thing, if you can get Brian Flores, you can hopefully resolve the Deshaun Watson situation. That's the hope anyways. But Kenny Pickett balled out. Kenny Pickett was an absolute baller at Pitt this past year. Broke almost every significant passing record in ACC history. As that confidence that rivals that of Joe Burrow, which is what you love to see from the quarterback position. Like Joe Burrow is one of the most fun quarterbacks to watch in the NFL. And he's one of the most confident quarterbacks. And there's a difference between being cocky and confident. 
Because confident, you can back it up. Joe Burrow can back up everything he's ever said. Everything he's ever said, he has backed up. You go look back at his time at Ohio State, transferred to LSU, no one, everybody said that was a dumb move. Because quarterbacks at that time going to LSU, that was like the quarterback graveyard. Like, no good quarterbacks were coming from LSU. The best quarterback that came from LSU in our lifetime, I'm talking people that are like 24 to 20 to 24 years old, is Matt Flynn. This is not a great university when it goes to developing quarterbacks, especially going to a team with a coach that was seen as a laughing stock in Ed Ogeron. And Joe Burrow goes on to win the Heisman, the widest margin of victory in Heisman history, and wins the, the national championship, becomes the first number one overall seed to win the college football playoff ever. And then dominates the NFL, tells the Bengals, hey, let's draft Jamar Chase. Everybody says no draft alignment. Jamar Chase breaks every single rookie receiving record in 16 games. He didn't need the seventh, the 18th game to do it, or 18th week to do it. Did it in the normal time. And now he holds all the Bengals receiving records. And it's not Jamar Chase that changed his team around. Joe Burrow being in his second year dominated. And that's what you want to see. This franchise has gone from, like we said, not winning a playoff game since 1991. You want to know the last first-round quarterback to win a playoff game for the Bengals? It's never happened. It's never happened. Like, Boomer Sison was a second-round draft pick. Ken Anderson, I don't believe, was a first-round draft pick. I could be wrong, but he wasn't a first-round draft pick, if I'm not mistaken. Hold on. I had a few Ken Anderson cards growing up. Yeah, he was a third-round draft pick. Bengals have never had a first-round quarterback win a playoff game. And Joe Burrow should do that unless something crazy happens against the Raiders on on Saturday, yeah. Like, the Bengals have been a laughingstock. They were a team that was named the Bungles for most of their existence. This team is a joke, and now they have hope because of Joe Burrow. I'm not saying Kenny Pickett will do the same things in the NFL as Joe Burrow can, but he's got that confidence that I really like, which means I think he'll do well in the NFL. And there's some things that he has small hands. Who the hell cares? He wears gloves. Like, Kurt Warner wore gloves towards the latter part of his career. He did fine. Got the Cardinals to a freaking Super Bowl. Dude's fine. Not really too worried about that. Go to Carolina. Relatively, you play in nice weather all the time. There's obviously the odd case, but most of the time you're playing in nice weather. I think Kenny Pickett is awesome. The confidence is there. I love the the fake slide thing. That's also very cool that he did. He's number one for me. Number two, and I think there's a gap between two and three. I think after Matt Corral, you have a pretty big gap. And I think Matt Corral, what I really like about Matt Corral is his leadership and his toughness and his athleticism. Because Matt Corral is not the biggest guy, but he's one of the toughest guys in the NFL draft. I would say you probably argue he is the toughest in the NFL draft. The problem is what comes with toughness comes some injuries. And when you think you're tough and you are tough, you're going to try and play in through some of those injuries. Which if you do that, that results you getting more hurt and then people start looking at you a lot different. And like we said in last year's draft, the best availability, the best ability is availability. And if you're hurt all the time, regardless if you're tough or not, you're not going to keep your job for very long. Now I think Matt Corral's leadership is almost second to none. He kind of rivals that of like Baker Mayfield, but I think he's more athletic than Baker Mayfield is. Like Matt Corral is one of the few people in college football history to have 20 plus touchdowns passing and 10 plus rushing touchdowns. It's not a lot, not a very wide list, at least in SEC history, anyways. So yeah, I like Matt Corral. I don't want him to get hurt. I don't want him to play through injuries because he will do that, and I think he'll get hurt more from that. After the, was the game against Auburn he got carted off against? 
I think it was Auburn. That After that, and basically after the Tennessee game where he ran it 30 times, he got sacked like 10, he kind of, his numbers started to dwindle a little bit because dude's playing hurt all the time. He didn't see that explosion that we were expecting or what we saw at the beginning of the year. It kind of started to just gradually work its way down. But I think Matt Corral is still the number two quarterback in the draft. Number three is Malik Willis. I Malik Willis can do more with the football in his hands than any quarterback in this draft. I don't think there's anybody in this draft class that is a combination of arm strength and athletic ability. And I'll talk about arm strength in a little bit with another quarterback. But the problem is with Malik Willis, he tries to do too much, which as shown throughout the history of sports, uh, mostly football, rarely works. It's a recipe for pretty much disaster 99% of the time. And Malik Willis is one of the most talented quarterbacks ever. But you saw at times against with Liberty, mainly against Ole Miss, and you saw it against uh, uh, UL Monroe as well, him trying to do way too much. Against UL Monroe, they were like 20-point favorites, and they lost. Like, this can't happen. Especially when you're looked at this great quarterback. If he tones down on that and gets into a place where he can sit for a year or two, develop, figure out, like, I need to settle down a little bit, get with a quarterback that will that doesn't turn the ball over a lot, that doesn't uh, force things like sometimes Malik Willis did more so this year than what he did last year. But I still think Malik Willis with his upside is number three. Number four is Desmond Ritter. I think if you're looking at what you want from a franchise quarterback or what you're picturing from a franchise quarterback, out of the top five, you could argue number five in this, but I think out of the top, we'll talk about four right now, Desmond Ritter's got most things you're looking for in a franchise quarterback. He's got the height, He's got the natural size, he's got arm talent, and he's very athletic. He's 6'4", 215, can run like the wind, and what we saw from him this year, which was massive, was the consistency throwing the football. This is what we needed, because in three years at Cincinnati, his numbers were like a freaking roller coaster. It was like a freaking mountain range. You go up, you go down. You go up, you go down. And then, then we saw from his junior to senior year, we saw that stat, like not stagnate, but stay consistent which is what you wanted. He set a career-high in passing touchdowns, set a career-high in yards. This was his best year in college football. Not only that, got Cincinnati the college football playoff, the first non-Power 5 team to do so, went undefeated, won the conference. Dude's awesome. Desmond Ritter's got it. And I really like Desmond Ritter. And the other thing they really like about him, again, is his running ability. He had 2,100 yards over his career with 28 touchdowns. Last year, you saw him a little bit, you use his legs a little bit more, at least get break off some longer runs. I like Desmond Ritter a lot. And I really like number five, too, and that's Carson Strong. I think Carson Strong, though I... this be, Listen to how I word this, okay? I think Carson Strong throws the best deep ball in college football. That being said, I think Malik Willis' arm stronger, okay? I think Malik Willis, at times, can be a little consistent with his accuracy. Sometimes he overshoots defender or overshoots receivers. Sometimes he underthrows him. He doesn't found that consistency yet. Carson Strong, I would say, probably has the second strongest arm in this draft, but I think he throws the best deep ball because every single time it's in stride. Every single time. His timing, everything is on point. He might not be the fastest quarterback in this draft. Actually, he might not be. He isn't the fastest quarterback. He's probably the slowest given out of the rest of the top 10. But everything he does is so precise. Like, his relationship with Romeo Dubs out wide and Cole Turner at tight end, one of the best trios in college football that doesn't get talked about. Like, there was a game last year. I don't. I think it was against Colorado State. I could be completely wrong. There was a game last year where he threw a fade route to Cole Turner on the left side. And I hate fade routes. I hate fade routes. 
on the in the end zone anyways. Fade route to Cole Turner, caught it, touchdown. They went for two. They ran the exact same play again and did it again. You get down to like the one, five, somewhere in between the 10, five, one yard line. That's easy money. They're throwing the ball and they are scoring a touchdown. The things that concerning are concerning for Carson Strong is the lack of mobility and the fact he's got some of a knee issue. So those are the only two things. Like, I think his skill set in regards to passing as a pure passer is better than the top five. The rest of the top five. I think he's the best pure passer out of the four quarterbacks above him. But he's the easily the least mobile. Easily. And he's got the most injury concerns. The other quarterbacks above him, apart from Matt Corral, doesn't have a major injury. He's got some, like, tweaks ankles every once in a while, but nothing, not a knee injury. But I think Carson Strong, cold weather, this dude could ball out. I think he'd be perfect in Pittsburgh. That'd be one of the most perfect spots for him. I think him with Sean Payton would be a lot of fun to see as well. Him in uh, Washington. Would, uh, well, I don't really know if Ron Rivera would like a statue quarterback. He's not a statue. I shouldn't say that. JT Daniels is a statue. Carson Strong's just not that, like, fleet-footed. He's <laughs> not, like, extremely slow. But yeah, I think he's the most precise passer in the draft. But he can't run. That's his issue. So that's why I have him at number five. Then you can go through, again, you can go through us to the top ten as you click on the link. You can go through the link on the LoganBlackmanShow.com or go to the social media accounts that we said earlier. Running back, this is quietly a good class. This is actually quietly a good, it's a very deep running back class. There's a lot of running backs coming out this year. Like a ridiculous amount. Now, there's one person that I have in the top 10 that has not officially stated if he's coming out or not. He's got till January 17th to announce this. We'll get to him in a little bit because he is in the top five. But number one is Brees Hall. Touchdown machine. <laughs> like, this dude broke the record for consecutive games with a touchdown in college football history. This is a record that stood longer than my parents have been on this earth. They've been alive for a half century. That's a ridiculously long time. And Brees Hall broke it. And I think what also helps Brees Hall this year, he's got the size, 6'1", 220, and he improved as a receiver. Iowa State started using him in the pass game, which was one of my concerns, I guess you could call it, the fact that Iowa State just didn't pass to him. I'm not saying that he couldn't catch, they just never used him, so people couldn't see what his pass-catching ability was. He passed his career high in receptions, like, week eight or something like that. It was not something that took till the very last game against Clemson, which he didn't even play. It wasn't something like that. It was a while. And he finished the, what did he finish? I have it, 36 receptions. I think his career high before that was 24. And he finished with 12 more receptions this year. Like, dude's awesome. Brees Hall is a beast. Arguably, I don't I don't know how Iowa State fans feel about this, but I think there's got to be a conversation to have between him and Troy Davis, the two greatest Iowa State running backs of all time, and who's the best. Because Troy Davis played on a way worse Iowa State team and had back-to-back 2,000-yard seasons. So I... I I don't know. It's about 50-50 probably. Probably about 50-50. But I think that the concern, quote-unquote concern for Brees Hall is the amount of carries he gets. Because one thing with running backs, the lifetime of a running back, shelf life, whatever you want to call it for a running back, is not very big. So with running backs, you need the tread on the tires thing. And Brees Hall over his career had 718 yards. Jeez, 718 carries over his Iowa State career. Does he have enough tread on the tires? Now, I think Brees Hall is awesome. I don't think that should concern him. And I think if you compared him to a running back, he'd be like Jonathan Taylor or something. This dude's awesome. I love Brees Hall. He's easily the number one running back in the draft. Uh, Number two is Kenneth Walker from Michigan State. Beast. I mean, he was Michigan State's entire offense this year. There are multiple games where he just willed them to victory. He had 6.2 yards a carry. 6.2. 
That's ridiculous, ridiculous numbers. He had 18 touchdowns this year, had 1,600 yards, had 89 broken tackles, 89. Like 6.2 yards per carry, had four games of 150-plus rushing yards, four games with two-plus touchdowns, three with over three touchdowns. The only issue here is, there's, well, there's two things. He's not the, necessarily like the biggest monster running back. He's about 5'10", about 220, somewhere around there, 219 maybe. So he doesn't have the height. Brees Hall's got three inches on him, and he's better in the pass game. This year, Kenneth Walker set a career high in catches with 13. Brees Hall broke his last year's record by 12. Like You put Kenneth Walker's number of catches. He has 19 catches over his career. Brees Hall had 36 this season. So that's my quote-unquote issue with him. But I think his explosiveness makes him very funny. He's a very powerful and explosive back that is very nice breakaway speed, very good burst. Because again, 6.2 yards a carry. And when you played Michigan State, you weren't worried about Peyton Thorne in the pass game. You knew you were going to score points because their defense was ass. So all you had to do was stop Kenneth Walker, and they still won, what, 11 games? Like they, you couldn't stop him. Other than Ohio State, but they're off, <laughs> that was a little different. Like This dude willed Michigan State to victory sometimes. Like This dude's awesome. Number three is Isaiah Spiller. Uh, consistent. Very consistent. He averaged over his three year career at AM, he averaged 5.4, 5.5, and 5.6 yards per carry. Like, that <laughs> doesn't really get much more consistent than that. Now, he doesn't register a whole lot of catches, but he didn't have a drop this past year, which is very good. And I think he's kind of like Kenneth Walker, just didn't put up the monstrous numbers Kenneth Walker did, but you could also go he's playing in a better conference, stuff like that. But Kenneth Walker, again, was playing on a worse team, and he's the main reason Michigan State won as many games as they did. If they don't have Kenneth Walker, they don't win as many games as they did. They do not beat Michigan without Kenneth Walker. They don't. <laughs> it's impossible. Dude, like, what, four touchdowns against Michigan? Five? Some ridiculous game against Michigan? But yeah, I like Isaiah Spiller. I, I honestly, I have contemplated flipping him in number four multiple times. And that's Kyron Williams, who's my, after Brees Hall, my favorite running back in the draft. Because I think Kyron Williams is very complete running back. I think if we're talking about Pass catching ability is the best receiver in the draft. He had to set 42 catches this past year with 78 career receptions. He averaged 8.7 yards per reception. Like, by far the best receiver in this draft class. And then you have back-to-back years of 1,000 yards. Averaged 5.3 and 5, 4.9 yards a carry. Both seasons had over 12 touchdowns. 13 one year, 14 the next year in rushing yards. He also had 58 broken tackles in 2021. The issue is, what some people consider an issue, he's not very big. Like, height-wise. He's 5'9", 200 pounds. Or barely. Not not even 200 pounds. He's 199 list on ESPN. So, what would you consider? Would you put him up higher? Because I've contemplated it numerous times that I kind of want to put him at three. I kind of do. Because I think he's a really good pass blocker, too. Which is what you need at the running back position. So, I don't know. He's at four right now. But uh, he could definitely move up to three. I think Walker and Brees Hall are number one and two pretty clearly. And then I would argue... Kyron Williams at three, but I have him at four right now. Number five, I had Zach Charbonnet from UCLA. He's the player I'm talking about that is not officially declared for the draft. Zach Charbonnet has not said anything. Zach Charbonnet is a Michigan transfer, put up decent numbers his first year at Michigan, didn't really do a lot his second year, and then this year at UCLA went supernova. Like, this year, <laughs> this dude bounces off tacklers. You'd think he has, like, a bubble suit on. Those, uh, those orb balls, Zorb balls that you see people play soccer with. Where you stick the ball on them and they've got little handles on the inside, you just run into people. 
That's what he looks like when he's running the ball, especially in his first two games against Hawaii and LSU. Now I know the LSU and Hawaii this year weren't necessarily the greatest teams of all time. It's not the LSU team that won the national championship a few years ago. This is LSU team that's pretty bad and pretty riddled with injuries. But even then, it was seen as a pretty big upset. UCLA was not supposed to win that game. And Zach Charbonnet was the big reason why. After he breaks off these tackles and breaks, he bounces off people. No one catches him. It's very rare to see him getting caught from behind. And if he doesn't go this year, because again, there's still the possibility he doesn't go. If he doesn't go this year, he'll go next year, and we'll be either the first or second running back off the board. Because I don't remember who are all the running who are the running backs. Let's just for fun, let's see who all the running backs are that are available right now. Hold on, give me a couple seconds. So the best running backs next year are Bijan Robinson. Okay, has Chris Rodriguez said anything? I don't know if he's coming back or not. Uh, Jaimir Gibbs, he's transferring from Georgia Tech. I believe that's a transfer from Georgia Tech. Mohamed Ibrahim, Jairil Brock from Iowa State. But, like, there's not a lot, like, a... It's not like a murderer's row of running backs here. If Zach Charbonnet stayed in college, he'd be the first or second running back off the board. Like, so I wouldn't be too shocked if he stayed back. But if he doesn't, he's going to be... The, he should be in the top five for running backs. Awesome running back. Wide receivers, this one's just weird because... I'm going to keep it the same. I'm going to keep it the same. I don't know how to... I don't know where I want to put him. I don't know where I want to put Jamison Williams because he tore his ACL, but I think on, 100% number one receiver in the draft. Best deep threat, can do everything in the pass game, everything in the run game, and even block and play, make plays on special teams as a gunner. I love Jamison Williams. The thing is, with how fast he is and how explosive he is, he's awesome because of how big he is. He's six foot two, like 190. Like He's not a really small receiver. Like, when you see someone as fast as him, you expect to be, like, 5'10 or so, like Tyreek Hill. No. This dude's tall. <laughs> He's taller than me, and I'm pretty tall. <laughs> but Jamison Williams, minus torn ACL, easily number one receiver in the draft. He's going to be a first-rounder regardless if he decides to go, because him and John Mechie haven't announced anything yet. But if him and John Mechie come back, good Lord, Bryce Young's easily walking away with the Heisman. I already think Bryce Young will be the first player to go back-to-back in Heisman history, apart from Archie Griffin. So adding Jameson Williams to meet John Mechie back, easy, easy work for him. There's no doubt in my mind. He might as well give that a 99% chance of Bryce Young winning the Heisman back-to-back. But Jameson Williams is awesome. He averages like a yard of separation every time he runs a route. It's something ridiculous like that. It doesn't make any sense for how good he is. If he didn't tear his ACL, he'd easily be the first receiver off the draft. Number two, uh, trail on Burks. I love Traylon Burks. This dude is a mean SOB out wide. This dude's 6'3", 225 pounds, and he doesn't really get talked about as much as I think he should in regards to the top receivers in the draft. Because if you looked at Arkansas this year, Arkansas runs the ball, feels like 90% of the time, maybe a little less than that. I mean, it's not exact numbers here, but they run the, they're a run-first team. K.J. Robbins, jeez. K.J. Jefferson is not a pass-first quarterback. The dude's like 6'5", 250 pounds. He's not a run for pass-first quarterback. He can pass. He's not, like, terrible at passing, but he's not, you know, I don't know, Carson Strong or somebody passing the football. So when Arkansas runs the ball, you need receivers that can block, and Traylon Burks is the best blocking wide receiver in this draft. I would also argue he's the most athletic, and we're talking about pound-for-pound wide receivers, the best pound-for-pound in the draft. And I think once we get closer to the combine, I think that's when we'll start getting him talked about as the number one receiver in the draft. Especially with Jamison Williams coming off an ACL injury. Especially with that. 
So with Burks, how dominant he's been at Arkansas, how heavily dependent they are on him at Arkansas to run, not even just catch the ball, but run the ball and block, his workouts will be ridiculous. I have no doubt in my mind. He, his workouts will be utterworldly at the Combine. So we'll see him get talked about a lot higher than this. Because Mel Kiper had him like number six. I don't understand that at all. I think he might be the most athletic receiver in this draft, given how big he is. Like, it's he's insane. I, I love Traylon Burks. Uh, number three, I flip back and forth between three and four. I'm just going to say them together. Three and four are Drake London from USC and Garrett Wilson from Ohio State. Drake London, we'll start with him. Former basketball player. Great athlete. Very wide catch radius. Dude could catch everything. Like, you could go to any USC game this year. And Keaton Slovis underthrew a pass, because that's just what he did this year. And Drake London's making some sort of circus catch. Didn't matter how unlikely it was for him to catch it. Drake London was catching that football. Drake London was coming up with the football more times than not in his time at USC. Unreal. It, it should have been illegal for how often he was coming away with these catches, because it, it didn't make any sense. Drake, Drake London, if we're talking about leaping ability, if we're talking about catch radius, is the best in the draft. He's 6'5", 210. He's a former USC basketball player. Like, this dude's got hops. He's got bunnies, as some people would say. But he's coming off an ankle injury. He's coming off a fractured ankle. So that's the part that's kind of worrisome. But he can play in the slot. Dude, 6'5", can play in the slot. So matchup nightmare for people guarding Drake London. And then Garrett Wilson, he's the dog of Ohio State's triplet at receiving core this year. Like you got Smith, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Chris Olave, and Garrett Wilson. Wilson was the dog. Wilson's the guy out of that receiving core. Super smooth wide receiver. He's not the biggest. He's about six foot. 180, 190, somewhere around there. Not the biggest, not the fastest, but somehow he breaks away from everybody. It's like stuff you can't really explain. I feel like he'll be the Justin Jefferson of this class because he's someone that can play in the slot and out wide. And in college, you go, oh, well, he didn't do anything that spectacular, like on the face of it, because you looked at Ohio State this year. They had Jackson Smith and Jigba, LSU had Jamar Chase. Like young receivers that balled out. And Jack Smith the Jigba will be the first receiver off the board if Jamison Williams doesn't come back. So, but if you looked at what they did this year, Garrett Wilson's the leader of that team. Garrett Wilson is the leader of that receiving core. And best route runner in the draft class. Apart, maybe you can even argue that number five, Chris Olave, is the best route runner in the draft. Like, Chris Olave is just a touchdown machine. This dude <laughs> at Ohio State had 35 career touchdowns. Ohio State's all-time record. 35. Most in this class, by far. Second best deep threat in the class behind Jamison Williams as well. Maybe the first, now that Jamison Williams is hurt. And he's not very big. He's about six foot, maybe one. I, he's listed at like 180. I don't really know if I believe that. He's not a very big guy. But great route runner. That's just something that you got taught at Ohio State. All three of Ohio State's big three of its in Jigba, uh, Wilson, and Alave are great route runners. I mean, Olave is the most athletic one. Wilson can do the most, and Smith and Jigba is just a matchup nightmare from the slot. Like before in Jigba, you had Garrett Wilson running from the slot. Duke can run both. That's why I really like Garrett Wilson a lot, because he has the ability to run from the slot and out wide. Chris Olave will just beat anybody deep. Chris Olave is insane deep threat. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are just outright, just ballers. They're just absolute ballers. Chris Olave is fun to watch. They're both, ah, just, uh, this, is, this is a fun receiving class. I'm not going to say it's like last year's where you had Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddell, Devontae Smith, Kadarius Tony, Like, it's a good receiving class, but this is three straight years of really, really, really good receivers. Three straight years. Because the year before, you had the likes of 
Henry Ruggs, you had Jerry Judy, CeeDee Lamb, Justin Jefferson, good receivers then too. And that's three straight years of really, really good wide receivers classes. I noticed I didn't mention anything about Henry Ruggs. We kind of just talk about the prospect here. You didn't have a single drop at Alabama. We're just going to talk about the prospect. But this receiver class is fun. There's a lot of fun receiving classes. There's some great ones. Like ones we didn't even mention, like Jahan Dotson, David Bell from Purdue. We got John Mechie. We don't know if he's coming back yet or not. And we got George Pickens from Georgia who made a great catch in the championship game. He's coming off some injuries, though. It's a little bit of concern. Wondell Robinson from Kentucky can play wide receiver and running back. Jalen Tolbert from South Alabama. Romeo Dubs, Justin Ross, Alec Pierce from Cincinnati, and Khalil Shakir from Boise. There's more. I, I just, There's just some that I could think of. Like, this is a really, really good receiving class, and whoever you get, it'll be fine whichever place you get them. Because Every one of these guys is a baller. Every single one. Next up on this list, we've got the tight end position, which is not always the most glamorous position. This isn't like a extremely, it's kind of rare to find like, oh, this is a deep-ass tight end class. Insanely deep tight end class. Now, it's a good tight end class, but it's nothing that you would go, oh, yeah, this is something that will be written about for years. Now, it could. Very well could. We'll have to talk about that a few years down the line, but right now it's just like, Nice receive, nice class. Number one, though, I think it's pretty clear the number one tight end is, and it's uh, freaking Trey McBride. I almost said Charlie Kohler. It's Trey McBride from Colorado State. The dude's massive. He's six foot four, two hundred sixty pounds. Dominates in the run game as you would expect with someone that big. But he had ninety catches, 1,200 yards receiving, or eleven hundred. He had eleven hundred twenty-one yards receiving this year. The only issue is it was just so weird. He had one touchdown. He had one receiving touchdown this year. After 90 catches and 1,100 yards, he had one touchdown. <laughs> and he led all tight ends in every single single receiving category, apart from, you know, <laughs> touchdowns, because he had one. But if you're talking about complete tight ends, Trey McBride's clear as the most complete tight end in the draft. Dominant in the run game. Dominant in the pass game. Size is unfair when getting matched up by secondary or even linebackers because of his athletic ability. Like, it's just unfair. Unfair tight end. Uh, number two, Jalen Weidermeyer. I think we're talking, these two are the clear top two guys, at least right now. I think number three, given time, could push Jalen Weidermeyer for number two. Given a little bit of time, could push Jalen Weidermeyer. But Jalen Weidermeyer is a very complete tight end, athletic, not as dominant as a blocker as Trey McBride, but he's a really good blocker as well. About 6'4", 6'5", about 255, so he's a pretty big tight end himself. The thing I like about Weidermeyer, he's athletic enough to where he can play both on the line of scrimmage and out wide. He can play in the slot as well. Like he's going to line him up pretty much anywhere, and it'll work most of the time. And with Texas A&M being a predominantly run-first team with Isaiah Spiller, he's very proficient in run blocking. His numbers aren't like amazing this year. About 500-something receiving yards this year. He had more, I mean, he had more than one receiving touchdown this year, but he's faster than most linebackers. He's more athletic than, or not more athletic, he's more, he's stronger than most secondary pieces, which is why you see him lined up out wide a lot at Texas A&M. Most of the cross, he's very versatile. That's what I really like about him. And you can see that about a lot of players in this draft, versatility is key. And you can see that in a lot of things that I like to say as well. Versatility, if you can play a lot of different things, I like you a lot. Number three, Isaiah Likely from Coast Carolina. I think it is very likely that he moves up to number two. I think he's more athletic than Jalen Weidermeyer at 6'4", 240. He doesn't have the size. He's not necessarily the greatest run blocker of all time, but great receiver. 59 catches, 912 yards, 12 touchdowns. Like, awesome. He had 27 career touchdowns. Never had below five in a single season at Coastal Carolina. 
Like, I think I saw something he ranks fifth all-time in Coastal Carolina receiving yards. Now, I know what you're thinking. That probably doesn't sound like a, it's not a very large feat. It's not something that is very hard to do because Coastal Carolina, you know, has not been known for producing insane wide receivers. Or instead that I could think of anyways. There might be somebody that I'm for completely forgetting. But <laughs> usually you don't think of them as producing insane wideouts. But I think given time, I think workouts could help him too. But Weidermeyer is going to work out well as well. But I think people will start liking Likely quite a bit. I think that's what will happen. I think people start falling in love with him as an athletic ability. And he could move up to number two. Could move up to number two. But right now he's at three. Number four, the guy I almost said at number one, <laughs> Charlie Kohler from Iowa State. Six foot six, 260 pounds. Monster. Absolute monster. Now, run game, you know, for a guy that big, he's not as good in the run game as you would expect. I'm not saying he's a, a softie or a pansy in the run game or anything, but looking like Trey Turner, Trey Turner, Trey McBride, I don't think Trey Turner would be a very good run blocker, but, you know, I don't know. I've never seen him play football before. Uh, Trey McBride, he's not that great, not like at the same level, but receiving wise, Charlie Kohler is a very good receiver. Size, very easy, can out-muscle every single defender he comes up against, can out-jump almost anybody. 2,100 yards and 23 touchdowns over four years at Iowa State. Natural size, he had 33, wait, what did it say? He had no drops in 33 red zone targets at Iowa State over four years. Best red zone target out of the entire draft class. So that's where he can kind of make up ground. But he won't go as high because of the fact he's not as athletic as either Weidermeyer or Likely. And he's not as good as a run blocker as Trey McBride, but I think he's better than the other tight ends in this draft class at both those things. So number five, we got Jeremy Rucker. I could rotate him in number six, my, uh, Cole Turner from Nevada, fairly easily. I really like Cole Turner. As we talked about before with Carson Strong, the relationship between Cole Turner and Carson Strong is awesome. But Jeremy Rucker, I think, could develop into a very, very nice tight end. His stats will not blow you away. But compared to the other tight ends in this draft class, like the four we just mentioned, we got McBride, we got Weidermeyer, we got Likely, and we got Kohler. No one else has had the amount of wide receivers, insane amount of wide receivers, that Ohio State has. Ohio State, in Ruckert's time, has had some ridiculous weapons out wide. So his numbers aren't going to be that amazing or that eye-popping. He had five, 615 yards and 12 touchdowns over four years. Like Isaiah Likely had 12 touchdowns this year alone. So it's not something that's going to go, wow, this dude is an awesome receiver. But what he, what he lacks in numbers, he makes up for great catches. He has a very wide catch radius. He can high point the ball very well. You can go watch the game against Clemson. Some of the catches he made in that game in the national champion or uh, the college football semifinals when Ohio State just blitzed Clemson, uh, embarrassed them when Justin Fields broke his ribs. Rucker's very good at that. And he's also a very good run blocker. Travion Henderson had a very nice season because of the, some of the things that he did. Then you got Trey Sermons had a very good year. You had Master Teague before that, and even this year with Master Teague, but he didn't play like as good as what some people were expecting, especially with the emergence of Travion Henderson. But I think Rucker could develop into a very nice tight end. I think his combination of catching and blocking is very big, even though the numbers aren't there. Numbers aren't necessarily there. But you wouldn't expect them to be if your top three wide receivers are Jackson Smith and Jigba, Chris Olave, and Garrett Wilson. It's just not going to work out. You're not going to have the insane numbers like the other tight ends on this list. But he comes in at five. Cole Turner was very close to being at number five. Tackles, Evan Neal, I mean, it's clear. <laughs> he's easily the best tackle this draft. Evan Neal is special. He's rotated all over the offensive line, played left guard, right tackle, and then left tackle everywhere. Monster. Six foot seven, 350 pounds. Unfair. Athletic beast. Like, he shouldn't be able to move as well as Evan Neal does at six seven, 350 pounds. It's ridiculous. 
It's illegal to move that well. See, easily. It's not even real challengers. <laughs> I mean, Ike McConwoo is very good. I really like Ike McConwoo, and he's a very similar style to that. He's very versatile. He's not as big as Evan Neal. He might not be as athletic, but he's mean. He is very, very mean. Both in the pass game and the run game. You can insert him at guard or tackle. He's played both left guard and left tackle at NC State. Some people are saying he should move inside to guard, but this dude's awesome. I think he's too mean. He's kind of like the Rashawn Slater in regards to, he might not be the biggest guy in regards to height that you're really looking for in tackles. Like, he's not 6'7". It's like 6'4", 6'5". Which is, not, it's not a slouch by any means necessary. But he's not going to blow you away with that. But he bullies people. His nickname at NC State's the Pancake King. You know who's famous for pancakes that in our lifetime was Orlando Pace? Could he develop an Orlando Pace? Maybe. Is he Orlando Pace? I don't know. I'm not going to say he's one of the greatest tackles of all time right now, but he could develop in that. Plays both guard and tackle, dominates in the run game, equally adept in pass blocking, a lot of fun to watch. Number three, Charles Cross. You'll see Charles Cross at number two on most lists. I think where Charles Cross, what hurts Charles Cross is the fact that Mississippi State doesn't run the ball. I think athletically, he might be more athletic than Ikem Akwanwu because just look at his frame, six foot five, three ten. Not necessarily like a monster, but the run game is startling to me. The the fact that they don't run the ball, it's not anything on Charles Cross. It's just doesn't he doesn't have the reps in it. Think of it similarly to that of Andre Dillard. I'm not saying he's Andre Dillard because Andre Dillard kind of proved to be a bust in the NFL. Got benched for a seventh round draft pick. So I'm not saying he's exactly like Andre Dillard, but think of the the circumstance, I guess. Because when Andre Dillard got drafted, Andre Dillard was seen as the best pass blocker in the draft. He was drafted in 2019 by the Philadelphia Eagles. He was going to go to the Texans. Eagles jumped the Texans. The Texans took Tyus Howard, which also did not work out, which was a very surprising draft pick when that one happened anyways. But he was seen as this elite pass blocker. The only issue was Washington State didn't run the ball. And it's the same coach. It's Mike Leach again. But I think Charles Cross is more athletic, so I think he could develop into a very nice run blocker. But I think if you're a team that struggles at moving linemen for running the football, Akonwu should be the guy you look at first. But I think potentially Cross could become better. But if you want instant stuff right now, I would say you probably take Akonwu. I would take Akonwu. I think he's just super mean. Cross's athletic ceiling is very high. But I'm going to take a quantum right now. Best pass blocker in the draft by far. 719 pass blocking snaps, allowed 16 pressures. That's ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. But they only had <laughs> Mississippi State averaged 63.2 yards of carry, which is dead last in college football. Only ran the ball 270 times, which is not a lot. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take Charles Cross at three. Four is Trevor Penning from Northern Iowa. Trevor Penning's mean. He's like Ikem Aquanu. And the fact that he's an absolute mauler. He's bigger than Aquan, who's six foot seven, three hundred and twenty-one pounds, moves very, very well. And I think we have to have the conversation. We've talked about this before a couple times. You and I had the best tackle duo in FCS history. They did. You have two top three round draft picks, and Spencer Brown, who's now starting for the Buffalo Bills and will be starting at right tackle for the Bills, the playoff game, and Trevor Penning, who's more than likely gonna be a first round draft pick. If not a first, he'll be an early, early second round draft pick. That's got to be in the conversation for best tackle duo in FCS history. Easily. It's got to be in the conversation. But he's a very good run blocker. Dominates in the pass game as well. Doesn't get beat very easily. Again, his speed for that size helps him out a lot. And UNI does a really good job of developing tackles. Spencer Brown and Trevor Penning were not monsters when they came into UNI. They developed into monsters. And they are 
mean, mean dudes. So I have him at number four. Number five is Nicholas Petit-Ferrer. Before the Michigan-Ohio State game, people were talking about Nicholas Petit-Ferrer as one of the best tackles in the draft. Now we are looking at a completely different light because he got absolutely dominated, bent over by Aiden Hutchinson. Dominated by Aiden Hutchinson. But he's still a good tackle. I still have him at number five. But he was seen as a top 20 pick, and I've seen some of them not even listen to the top 50 players in the draft. Especially with the the assurgence of Bernard Raymond from Central Michigan, who's a former tight end who plays very well at tackle, dominant for Central Michigan this year. But I think Petit Ferrer stays at number five for right now. I think I'm going to keep him at number five. We'll keep him there. Because he, he's having a very good season, apart from that one game against Michigan. Now moving into your O-line, we got Trevor Linderbaum, the best center prospect ever. I mean, it's not really... What other prospect centers do you have to compete with? Mawe, Kevin Mawe, uh, Nick Mangold. I mean, Bruce Matthews, Hall of Famer, but he played all over the offensive line. I don't know Tyler Linderbaum will play over the O-line. And with all the Iowa players committing back, going saying they're going back to Iowa, I wouldn't be too surprised Linderbaum just stayed in Iowa. He's an Iowa boy. He's from Solon, Iowa. Like, this dude, I would not be surprised at all if he was ta- if he stayed back at Iowa. Given the fact that Riley Moss is coming back, Jack Campbell's coming back, Sam Laporte is coming back, Charlie Jones is coming back. So it got, there's a lot of people coming back from Iowa for Iowa this next year. I wouldn't be too surprised if he did. But if he goes, he'll be the first center draft in the top 10 since Bruce Matthews. So I would go. I think his athletic ability is insane. He played D-tackle when he first got to Iowa, transitioned to center, explosive, very good puller, dominant in the run game. Absolutely dominant in the run game. And then pass game, he's allowed one sack in two years, and then this year he allowed two in 2021. So... Dude's off. Through 2019-2020, he allowed two, one sack. Two in 2021. That's ridiculous. Tyler Lindebaum is clear in the center prospect. And then the interior off the line, you got Kenyon Green, Darian Kenyard. I kind of put them in the same light because they both play tackle and will more than likely switch inside to guard. Dar- Kenyon Green is awesome, though, because if you look at the numbers of snaps he's played, like he played 241 snaps at left guard, 142 at right tackles, 106 at right guard, and 81 at left tackle. Dude played everywhere. And with 241 snaps at left guard, people are going to expect him to move into guard. His size says that too. He's about 6'4", what, about 330, 335, somewhere around there. Mean. Not as mean as like a Conway or anything, but he's Mahler. Mahler. And I like a lot of these players, especially the versatile ones like Kenyon Green. And Darian Kennard, a stocky, 6'5", 345 pounds. Like, (laughs) everything is in the middle. Everything and part of his body's in the middle. <laughs> That's all where all the weight is. But top five rush offense in the SEC, dominant against the run. And if you look at his sack, the pressure allowed, he had the second lowest number of sacks or percent, geez, numbers. Slow down, Logan. Lowest number. Okay, I'm just going to read it out. It says allowed the second lowest percentage of pressures in the SEC for tackles at 1.7%. Like, Duke can dominate in the run. He'll beat people up in the run game, but he can also keep you off the quarterback in the pass game as well. And then number four, Zion Johnson, who I have kind of rivaling, rivaling the top three guys. Top, well, two of the top three. He's not live in Lindenbaum, but he could push up past Kennard and Kenyon Green because I love Zion Johnson's story. This dude's a zero-star recruit, went to Davidson, played triple option, then transferred to Boston College, became a first-team All-American. Zero-star to Davidson, to Boston College, to All-American. six foot three, 316 pounds, played left tackle, played left guard at Boston College, run dominant in the game. His best trait is the run blocking. 
playing a Davidson triple option, and then you got Boston College, who's predominantly a run-first team as well. Now, Boston College wasn't the best this year, especially because they lost their quarterback, Phil Yurkovic, in week two. He came back midway through the season, but he wasn't the same. But yeah, I really like Zion Johnson. I like his story. I like people that came from, started off with nothing, pretty much, we're talking about football sense, and then worked their way up to be a first-team All-American. Now we're talking about possible first-round draft pick. So I really like that. And then we've got Sean Ryan from UCLA. I was stuck between him and uh, my dude from Georgia. I forgot his name. Jeremiah Seiler. So we're rotating between them, but I got Sean Ryan just above him. I play guard-tackle hybrid. There's a lot of guards in here that can play both guard and tackle. After Linderbaum, everybody until Donovan West, who's at number eight, can play guard or tackle. Thayer Munford at number seven, play guard or tackle. <laughs> like that's Versatility is key here. Versatility is king. Sean Ryan saw mostly his action at left tackle, but can move inside to guard. Was the freshman first freshman to start a season over at UCLA at left tackle since 2012. Was a three-year starter. In that time span, he has 2,000-yard rushers in behind him. Joshua Kelly and Zach Charbonnet we had this year. As a, UC, as a team, UCLA even averaged 200 yards per game for two straight seasons with Sean Ryan at tackle. Like You want to run team, you want Sean Ryan on your team. He's one of the most dominant run blockers in the draft. And a lot of these guards are. As a guard, you want to be proficient in the run game. That is something big because, you know, you're in the interior. Running backs are going to run up your lanes a little bit more. So I like him quite a bit. And then Jeremiah, Jeremiah, jeez, Jamaray Siler, jeez, I keep messing up his name. He's right behind him. Dominant in the run game as well. We saw He's the number one in the SEC in regards to pressures allowed this season. So I would be fine with sticking him at number five, but I got Sean Ryan there. For right now, moving on to D lineman. This is going forever, and I'm all out of water. <laughs> this is going on forever. We're at an hour and a half, over an hour and a half. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, number one in the D lineman. We're gonna try and speed run this a little bit more. Uh, Demarvin Leal. We're talking about versatility again. He's played both times at linebacker, edge rusher, D lineman, but at six, six four two ninety. Probably going to expect him to play either a 3-4 D end or a 4-3-3 tech. That's what we're looking at right now. He's not going to be the main guy in the middle of a defense, but he will be an interior lineman. He won't be an edge rusher on a 3-4 defense. He'll be the guy right next to the big guy, the nose <laughs> the nose, the nose guard. Had a nice season this year. Put up, a, what was it, eight and a half sacks this year, nine sacks this year. Plays everywhere. I really like that. But the thing is, tweener, where will he play? I would expect him to move inside. Uh, Jordan Davis is next. Best run blocker or best run stopper in college football. The only thing that scares me to a certain extent about Jordan Davis is his pass rush ceiling is relatively low because of the fact he doesn't get after the quarterback. He's so monstrous. But I think the thing that helps Jordan Davis a lot is the fact that because he's so big, he absorbs more blockers. So what that means is that he's allowing other teammates to get after the quarterback because he's taking on more people at the same time. And even though he's not getting after the quarterback, he's causing mayhem. He's not like he's just standing back there and doing absolutely nothing. Jordan Davis is causing problems every single time he's on the field. Every single time he's on the field. And he, as we said, the easily the best run blocker in college football. Forced more fumbles than touchdown allowed this year, Georgia's defense. They had 12 touchdowns, or geez, three touchdowns allowed with 12 fumbles. 12 forced fumbles this year. Registered only two sacks in 2021, but it doesn't matter. Again, you'll be liked by a lot of your teammates by absorbing those blockers because you're freeing up lanes for everybody else. Next one, Devontae Wyatt, his Georgia teammate. 
uh, unfairly, he was kind of seen as Jordan Davis's Robin. Like, Jordan Davis is Batman, Devontae Wyatt's Robin, which isn't really fair because if you're looking at just numbers, Devontae Wyatt put up better numbers in regards to tackles, tackles for loss, sacks, QB hits, and forced fumbles, and he played one less game. But he's very quick, very powerful, he's 6'3", 315, can get after the quarterback, can make tackles in the backfield like this dude. Jordan Davis, I would say, definitely helped, but I would not put the label on him that he's a Robin. I don't want to put that label on every anybody. Next one, we got Logan Hall from Houston. You could argue that this dude's an edge rusher. He's not very big. He's a small, and we're talking about just weight, 6'6", 275. He's not the biggest dude ever. He's not that big of an interior D-lineman, but similar to DeMarvin Leal, he'll be either a 3-4 edge rusher or a 3-4 D-end, not edge rusher, because he won't be an outside linebacker, or he'll be a 3-tech and a 4-3 defense. That's what we're really looking at right here. But he's very fast. He has 47 tackles, 6 sacks this past year, can move very well for his height, I guess. But he's not, like, again, he's not monstrous. He's not 360 pounds. He's not 350 pounds. He's good size. Probably He might sneak into the first round. We'll have to tell. But time will tell. But he could very well sneak into the first round. I have him in the second round right now, but he could sneak up there. I mean, Peyton Turner got into the first round last year. No one expected that. So maybe Logan Hall joins his Houston teammate there. And number five is Fedarian Mathis from Alabama. If we're talking about pressure from just the interior D-line spot, he might be the best out of the top five. Him and DeMarvin Leal are kind of, or Leal, however you want to pronounce his name, very similar in that stat. Like, over his career, 129 tackles, 10.5 career sacks, five passes defended, and three forced fumbles. This past year, he was second on the team in sacks behind Will Anderson and third on the team in in tackles for loss. He had 12 this year. This is coming from an interior line spot. He's 6'4", about 315, somewhere around there. Dude's fun. And Alabama ranked fourth in the nation rushing defense. So, much like Georgia, Alabama ain't no slouch in the run game either. Like, 82.8 yards per game, averaged 2.5 yards a carry, which is not that far behind Georgia, who I think averaged about 2.2 or 2.1 yards per carry this year. Dude's awesome. Fedarian Matthews is very fun to watch, especially from the D-line, interior D-lineman spot. But I have him at five. I could see him moving up to four or even three, but I, I want to put him at five for right now. I want to put it. I want to keep him at number five, but with the possibility of him moving up because he's an Alabama D lineman. You can rarely go wrong with Alabama D lineman. Like look at Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne. Um, those are just the two off the top of my head I could think of. I mean, for a little bit, Marcel Darius was really good. Is there any other ones I could? <laughs> I can't. I'm not gonna try and fry my brain here. My brain's already fried. We're about an hour and forty in. My brain's fried. But we're gonna we're gonna keep battling through. We're gonna keep battling through. And then moving on to the next position group on here, we've got the edge rushers, one of my favorite position groups in the draft, the best. And we're talking about uh, available prospects. This is the best group in the class. This and wide receivers are the two most dominant groups in the class. And number one and two, I think, are neck and neck, but I did end up putting Hutchinson at number one. And it's not just for one game. People want to go like, oh, it's the Ohio State game. That pushed to number one. No, 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 no. Aiden Hutchinson dominated all year. That was just his Heisman moment. If you look at a game that was like, oh, yeah, that's their their key moment of the season. Yeah, it was a great game, but he's he's done that throughout the season. It's not like he just put up monster numbers in that game, which he did. He had seven tackles, five solo tackles, and three sacks against Ohio State, which was seen as an unbeatable team for that Michigan team. Michigan wasn't supposed to beat them. That wasn't supposed to happen. We didn't think Michigan was going to beat them, and they did. And that saw him jump up to number one. But he had 14 sacks, strength third, 19 tackles for loss of 66 pressures with two forced fumbles. It's not just off that one game. It's not just off that one game. I know people would like to convince you that it is, 
but it's not just off that. He dominated all season. And then number two, Kayvon Thibodeau. You could say he's more athletic. I would say Hutchinson's more powerful than Thibodeau. I think Thibodeau can do more if you're talking about positional versatility, if we're talking about playing outside linebacker or a 4-3 D end. Hell, he could probably even play a 3-4 D end if he really wanted to. But he's like 6'5", 250, powerful, good against the run too, can beat any edge rusher or any tackle with his speed around the outside. Dude's awesome. Kayvon Thibodeau will be number one pick. He's guaranteed top three. I mean, that's no secret because he got the Jaguars, the Lions, and Texans. One of them will take him. He ain't slipping past three. So, yeah, I don't think he'll be too upset with that. Number three, though, speaking of three, is David Ojabo from Michigan. I think if we're looking at Ojabo, I, it's crazy to think that this dude's played football for five years. I think that's what the most intriguing part about him is because of the fact you can build something there. You can build something awesome with Ojabo. The lack of experience he has, could, yeah, I can understand it'd be somewhat of a concern, but you have endless potential right there he wasn't really talked about as a top prospect before this year and then he dominated 6'5 250 same exact size as Thibodeau like just awesome he moved to New Jersey at 17 from Scotland and then just started playing football now he's dominant as top three edge rusher he can play as an outside linebacker can play as a D end wherever you want to play him he'll get after the quarterback he's arguably the fastest edge rusher in this draft at least in the top five like Ojabo's awesome I don't think he's as powerful as number four which is George Karloftis from Purdue, because I think Karloftis, for what he lacks in numbers, it's kind of a similar situation to Davis, even though I think that Karloftis can get after the quarterback. Karloftis is double-teamed all the time. Purdue's got no real other options on the defensive side of things, so if you stop one player, which is George Karloftis, you can kind of go, eh, yeah, we're kind of, we should be fine. We should generally be fine on the defensive side of things. Offensive line stopped him, should be pretty good. And he's 6'4", 275, can work either inside or outside, which is awesome. I love that. So whether it's a 3-4 DN, 4-3 DN, or maybe even a 4-3-3 tech, he should dominate. He is the most powerful edge rusher in this class out of the top five. And I think number five is close with him, Trayvon Walker from Georgia. This dude went from being a three tech to moving outside to free up space for Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, and a few others. And his numbers weren't like amazing. I mean, this year, 17 solo tackles, five sacks, both career highs due to position change, but one year playing edge rusher, I think his ceiling is ridiculously high. Was 290, moved down to 275 this year to play edge rusher to get more speed. I think if we're talking about players with the highest upside in the draft, he might be one or two because there's he's good. He's a lot of fun to watch. And he might not put up the numbers, but I think those will come in time. Kind of the same thing as Jason Owe when he got drafted from Penn State. Dude didn't post a single sack his last year at Penn State. Still got drafted in the first round, and deservingly so, because of how athletic he is. I think Trayvon Walker could do the same thing, and he still even finished with five sacks, which is more than George Kalaftis did. But I think Trayvon Walker will be one of the better players once we come back to this list in five years. At least that's what I hope he is. Could be wrong, but I hope he is. Uh, Moving on to linebackers. I think there's one and two, and then the rest are, like, out there. Number one's Devin Lloyd for me. Number two's Nicobe Dean. I don't think it takes anybody, like, any real brain power to figure out that those two are the number one, two linebackers in the draft. I think the difference is, like, if you're just going side by side, I think Nicobe Dean is that Roquan Smith-esque linebacker. Not the biggest guy. Maybe not, like, you look at it and go, the most athletic guy, but a great leader. Will make plays wherever you ask him to. I think Devin Lloyd is in the mold of Micah Parsons 
where he could play inside linebacker, he play outside linebacker, and he'll make tackles. He's faster than almost everybody on the defense. He's got the size 6'3 through 35. Devin Lloyd's got everything you're looking for in a linebacker, but it's basically just whatever you're really looking for. If you want a leader, and you want someone who's probably better in the pass game, you take N'Kobe Dean. If you want a more do-everything linebacker, you take Devin Lloyd. Like, that's my analysis for those two, because they're about neck and neck. There's nothing that really separates them, apart from Lloyd's bigger and faster. That's about it. But then we got number three, Christian Harris, typical Alabama linebacker, really fast, ever does everything smartly and soundly. Like in the national championship game, he made plays everywhere for Alabama. Everywhere. No matter where you looked on the field for Alabama, Christian Harris was right there. Christian Harris was everywhere on the national championship game. 221 career tackles with 10 sacks. Dude's awesome. Christian Harris is a very fun linebacker to watch. And every time you see an Alabama linebacker, you get excited, especially someone like Christian Harris. Then you got Brandon Smith, outside linebacker, inside linebacker, whatever you want. Penn State's linebacker you. Penn State's always been linebacker you. He has a great speed. If you're a Penn State linebacker, you're going to be fast. And Brandon Smith is just that. Very athletic. And the next one, Channing Tindall from Georgia. Probably the fastest linebacker in the draft. Probably. If not, he's number two. And he ain't that far off. If he's not the fastest, I guess you could put Devin Lloyd up there for number one if you wanted. But Tindall, he can track down anybody. There's not a lot of people that would outrun him from the linebacker spot. Run game, dominant. Press up. No running backs outrunning him. And him and T- Nicobe Dean formed the best linebacker duo. So you could make an argument forever. College football history. Make a real strong argument for that. They dominated this year. Absolutely dominated. And then got cornerback. Uh, I think the top six are really good. Top six are really good. Uh, Derek Stingley, if you look at his freshman year, one of the most dominant freshman seasons ever from a cornerback position. The only problem is, is that he's injury prone. Dude's barely played any football since his freshman year. He's sat out most of last season. He sat out most of this season, too. So that's somewhat of concern. Someone like Ahmad Gardner, who I have at number two, Ahmad Sauce Gardner, has awesome size, awesome range, six foot three, 200 pounds. Never given up. Has played over 1,000 snaps in pass coverage and has never allowed a touchdown. Never. Now, I get he's playing in the AAC. He's not playing in the toughest conference, but dude did play against Alabama in the, conference, the college football playoff did play against Davison Williams, and did allow a single touchdown. A thousand snaps, not a single touchdown allowed. A thousand. That's a lot. And he doesn't get beat deep, ever. For that size, you would think he'd kind of lack in the speed department. No, he does not. And with his size, he doesn't get beat over top either. No one mosses him. It's not happening. Like, I, I could really see argument that he'd be the number one corner in the draft, especially with Stingley's injury history. I could really see an argument for that. Like, it might not be something that's out there, like, gets looked at or talked about that much, but I think there's a very strong case for that. I think there's a very strong case for that. But I am at two right now. Uh, Andrew Booth, you look at what he did this year, his numbers started coming up a lot more towards the latter part of the season, especially in that last game. I think it was against South Carolina, and the Wake Forest was also a very good game for him. But yeah, he came in the same recruiting class as Derek Stingley. Very athletic. If you're looking at lockdown corners, he is one of those guys. And I have him, basically, I have Stingley and Gardner at their own tiers. And then three, four, five, and six, you could rotate, and I'd be perfectly fine with. Like, number four, Roger McCreary, best tackler out of the corners. Dude had 135 tackles and 11, 111 solo tackles in his Auburn career. He took like 40, almost 50 tackles this year at Auburn. Oh, you want a tough tackling corner, Roger McCreary is definitely your guy. And Kyrie Elam at five. Track speed. He's got the ideal size, 6'2", 196 pounds. 
bank up speed for days. Much like Gardner rarely gets beat deep. His numbers weren't like anything spectacular this year. But if you want to like build a corner, you'd probably want to build someone like Elam. And then Trent McDuffie at six, he's probably the most athletic corner out of these six. But he's the smallest one, which I shouldn't say is like a big knock against him because you look at guys like Chire Alexander, who's one of the best corners in the NFL, is barely 5'11". So I think Trent McDuffie could fall in that same category, but I have him just outside at number six. So you could, like, again, three, four, five, and six, you could rotate it in any order and it wouldn't really bother me. And then finally, safety. Uh, we got Kyle Hamilton at one. Uh, probably the most versatile player in the draft. Like, I don't think there's anybody that has his combination of size, 6'4", 220, range. We're talking about he can play the best. He's the best center fielder in the draft. He can run up against the quarterback, make plays in the run game, can come up against the line of scrimmage, and he can even play corner. And his speed just catches. He doesn't lose any battle. You Watch his game against Florida State. He made a play, interception, from one hash all the way to the other, other the opposite sideline. It makes no sense what Kyle Hamilton's doing. Now, he is coming off an injury, but still, I mean, no, no one's coming close to him in the safety position here. <laughs> and there's some good safeties, like Jaquan Brisker, Daxton Hill. Daxton Hill's an interesting one because Daxton Hill is the only one in the top five that you would list as like probably a natural, quote-unquote natural, natural free safety. Because where Kyle Hamilton, I think he's listed as a free safety, but he can do everything. Daxton Hill is playing the deep line center fielder every day. There's not a lot of teams that will test Michigan deep. That was one thing we said that against Iowa-Michigan. Iowa can win the game if they keep things short and don't try to beat Daxon Hill deep. They tested him once. I think they got lucky and got a pass interference, but don't test Daxon Hill. Daxon Hill is an elite center fielder, and he will be an early, early second-round pick, if not a late first-round pick. Then we got Lewis Seen from Georgia, was the college football national championship defense player of the game. Made plays everywhere. Probably the hardest hitting safety in the draft. Him and Jordan Battle, I guess you could say, are neck and neck in that regard. Regards to hardest hitting, like, they they lay the wood every single time. And Lewis Seen was all over the field against Alabama in the national championship game. Awesome, awesome defender. So that's it for our top five players at every position. You can go and look at the LoganBlattmanShow.com to see the full top ten list as well as a top 50 players list. It's got reasoning for the top five players. So you can just look at the top ten players and go down all the way to the bottom and see the top 50 players. So just a quick recap. Quarterbacks is Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, Malik Willis, Desmond Ritter, and Carson Strong. Running backs is Brees Hall, Kenneth Walker, Isaiah Spiller, Kyron Williams, and Zach Charbonnet. Wide receivers for now is still Jamison Williams, Traylon Burks, Drake London, Garrett Wilson, and Chris Olave. Tight ends is Trey McBride, Jalen Weidermeyer, Isaiah Likely, Charlie Kohler, and Jeremy Ruckert. Off to tackles, Evan Neal, Ike McQuanu, Charles Cross, Trevor Penning, and Nicholas Petit-Ferrer. Interior off the line, Tyler Lindebaum, Kenyon Green, Darian Kennard, Zion Johnson, and Sean Ryan. Interior D lineman, DeMarvin Leal, Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, Logan Hall, and Fedarian Mathis. Edge rusher, we got Aiden Hutchinson, Kayvon Thibodeau, David Ajabo, George Karlaftis, and Trayvon Walker. Linebacker, we got Devin Lloyd, Nicobe Dean, Christian Harris, Brandon Smith, and Channing Tindall. Corner, we got Derek Stingley, Ahmad Sauce Gardner, Andrew Booth, Roger McCreary, and Kyrie Elam. And then safety, we got Kyle Hamilton, Jaquan Brisker, Daxton Hill, Lewis Seen, and Jordan Battle. Oh my goodness, that was a lot longer than what I was expecting. But hey, you know what? We did it, so that's all positive here. <laughs> I would like to congratulate you if you made it this far down in the show. We're almost at two hours. We haven't done a two-hour show 
Uh, well, it probably hasn't been as long ago as I'm trying to think it is, but who knows? Who knows? But that's all I've got for you today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoy the NFL playoffs. If you don't, I, I apologize for everything. I don't know if my predictions are going to be the most accurate, but that's what that's what I want to happen. That's what I want to happen. Some of those are what I think. Some of those are what I want to happen. But who knows? Who the hell knows what's actually going to happen? There's going to be some upsets. Something that maybe the Steelers do upset the Chiefs. Maybe they do. Somehow, some way, they beat the Chiefs. But you never know. But I do hope you enjoyed the show. And I will hopefully see you guys on Monday in a happy mood. I hope I'm in a happy mood on Monday. I hope I get to see the Buffalo Bills beat the Patriots. If not, I'll be a little sour. But you know what? We move. It's just another day, and then I'll be depressed because football. NFL's over, but hey, we got the USFL, so what's there to be sad about? But that's all I've got for you today. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I will see you all later. Peace.